Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. song called Bella Lugosi by I.M. Barron. It's from their 2018 album, Dance Macabre, available on iTunes. Why, pray tell, would we be listening to a song called Bella Lugosi? Well, just like we did several months ago where we uh, took a look at several films in the career of Boris Karloff, we are taking a look at several films in the career of Bella Lugosi, or is it Bela Lugosi? I guess it depends. Tomato, tomato. This, of course, is the month and the anniversary of his death. He passed away on August 16th, 1956. So we're going to be uh, taking a look at three of his films, Murders in the Rue Morgue from 1932, The Return of the Vampire in 1943, and Bride of the Monster from 1955. Yes, and that should be fun. I am Jeff Owens from the ClassicHorrors.club blog and website. I am Richard Chamberlain from Kansas City Cinephile at kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. So we've got all of that about Bela, plus our regular features, old business, new business, TV terror guide, birthdays, anniversaries, and some voicemail. Let's get to it. I'll call this meeting to order. Let's start out by just welcoming a couple of new members to our Facebook group page, The Classic Horrors Club. This is our gathering spot online to find out what movies we'll be covering in the future, for people to comment on movies, make suggestions, and just overall have a good time. Joining us this month is Chris Franklin, who we will hear from in a little bit, Derek M. Cook, who we talk about all the time, and John Sunderman. Welcome to our group. Yes, indeed. Welcome, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you, whether it's through voicemail or on the, uh, the little thing called Facebook. You can also send comments, feedback to us at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. You can call our hotline, 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. And if you happen to be listening to us, I'm going to be better about this, Richard please give us an honest review on iTunes. We were schooled last time that uh, that could be a beneficial thing. So take a, a second, get on there, and give us an honest opinion about what you think of our podcast. Yeah, we definitely want to hear what you have to say. And if you've got criticism of the show, suggestions, what have you, we want to hear. We always want to try to improve. We've made some advancements in the past month. We know that we had some technical difficulties uh, last month uh, with Steve. I think all in all, things ended up sounding pretty good, all things considered. But we decided it was time to up our game a little bit after a year and a half. So we have a new soundboard. We have new mics. We got these fancy little 
sound pop producers. And you wondered what those did. Richard, you just spit when you said pop. And they will not know that because this will filter that out. It may be damp when we're done recording. Yes. But they will not hear that <laughs> pop. <laughs> we're anxious to hear how this is going to sound. And again, it, it may take us a while to kind of play around with some things. But let us know. Let us know and, and know that we're uh, always trying to improve the quality of the show. Yes, and if my voice sounds deeper and sexier, I, I'm not sick or feeling badly. It's just this equipment makes me sound much more appealing. Maybe. I don't know. I hope so. I, I can't even have a comeback for that. You caught me off guard. We have one item of new business, which is pretty good. Some weeks we have a lot of new business, or old business, excuse me. That's when we correct mistakes from the last episode or things that we didn't know. And we talked about uh, Boris Karloff's Cauldron of Blood. We didn't remember if that was actually the last movie he made. And where did it fit in with those four movies he made uh, for Mexico, where he actually was in Los Angeles sort of phoning in his parts? So... It's a little bit of everything. It's kind of an interesting story, and you're going to be so proud of me, Richard. If you listen carefully, I'm going to throw in a Star Trek reference. So early mm -hmm. on in the show. I know it. Well, you know, I'm on top of my game. So. All right. Uh, so it was actually filmed in Spain in 1967. This is Cauldron of Blood, but released after his death in 71. The four Mexican movies, Isle of the Snake People, The Incredible Evasion, also known as Alien Terror, Fear Chamber, and House of Evil were all made in the spring of 1968. Cauldron of Blood made before those four, but released in the middle of the four Mexican. House of Evil, Fear Chamber came out first, then Cauldron of Blood, Isle of the Snake People, and Alien Terror. All of these movies, in fact, came out after Karloff died, because he died in 1969. Cauldron of Blood, I remember, is probably the best of the lot. It certainly is it's not a classic but it is when compared to those last four films that he made in los angeles for mexico those films are it's been a few years since i've seen them they're rough they're, they're rough but they're actually become a little harder to find these days you know they kind of made the rounds for a while in public domain sets and stuff but i think you have to kind of dig for them a little bit i think a couple of them still pop up on the mill creek Boris Karloff set that I think you can still get for probably less than $10 if you uh, search. But the one or two of them, I think, are a little bit harder to find. They're all still public domain. I think they're just so bad that they're really not in demand. But you can, I'm sure you can find them on YouTube absolutely free. <laughs> Do you remember anything about the music in Cauldron of Blood, about the soundtrack? I remember it being fairly contemporary, if I recall. I, I think that it was... There was some psychedelic music or something that kept popping up in some of the scenes. It's been a while, though. Well, would it surprise you to learn that some of the music from the soundtrack was used by Filmation Studios, not only in the live-action Shazam TV series, which I remember fondly, but also in the animated Star Trek television series? You know, I think that's... You're jogging my memory now. I remember that. Yes, Yes, I remember when I watched that movie, and it's probably been 10 years ago, because I remember that I acquired it on a VHS copy off, off eBay, and then I dubbed it off to, to DVD, and I remember having my mind blown, and then I, I buried that, because it was just a, like I said, it's not a great film, and then I was like, why is that music in here? Yes, so now I have to go back and see that, <laughs> because it's, it's very surreal hearing that music. Filmation had, I think maybe four songs that they just kind of played repetitively through all of their various cartoons. So 
and of course Shazam coming out next spring from DC. The trailer just made its debut here in the last couple of weeks, so uh, I have a feeling that that set, that series, is probably going to make its rounds. I'm sure there'll be some type of special release to try to capitalize on it. Uh, I'm not sure who owns that anymore. Those filmation rights have been muddy for quite a few years because they kind of passed from hand to hand to hand. The animated series I know is owned by CBS Paramount, but I think a lot of the others, like the Tarzan series, that has not been released commercially. There's <laughs> There were a handful of episodes that were put on a special DVD maybe two or three years ago. The quality was questionable. A lot of people saying that their bootleg copies were better and so I never bought it. Uh, I've got some off-air recordings from a Canadian station uh, on a bootleg set I bought 15 years ago on VHS. That's a hard series to find. Is that with Ron Ely? No, or, this was, what, which one was Tarzan, this? Lord of the Jungle from the 19... 19- Animated? Or yes. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, it, it was... Uh, Often paired was there. It was the, like the first year it was by itself, and it was the Batman Tarzan Adventure Hour. Then it was the Batman Tarzan Lone Ranger Adventure Hour, and then it was the Tarzan Lone Ranger Zorro Adventure <laughs> Hour. They just kind of kept rehashing. But that's an excellent Tarzan series, and one that really I wish. And if they put that one out on Blu-ray, that'd be a no-brainer for me. Even if it came out on a DVD set, official DVD set, that'd be a no-brainer because that was something I watched every Saturday morning for years. It's an excellent series, and but the rights between that and the Edgar Rice Burroughs, they're very protective of the Tarzan mm. name, and then Filmation is as well. It's like muck and mire there on the rights issues, which is unfortunate. You know, if the Shazam movie is a success, I can only hope and pray they'll make a Mighty Isis movie. <laughs> that would be... Uh... That'd be interesting. It'd be interesting to see how they how they would pull that off. I, the trailer, I, you know, I was I'm interested in it. It certainly looks like it's going to take a more lighthearted approach. There's certainly a few things that I think it was maybe Christopher Page said he's getting a Green Lantern vibe off of it. I kind of get what he's saying. There's a, f- a few things that I'm like, that's an interesting way to go. But I think what we've seen is that Marvel has proved that you can do lighthearted movies like Thor Ragnarok and the Guardians of the Galaxy movies and Ant-Man and you can be successful and I think it's you don't always have to be dark because comics didn't used to be dark they used to be lighthearted even the superhero comics Shazam has always been more lighthearted than the rest personally I'm looking forward to having some of those original stories reprinted, which I know they're planning on doing the, what is it, the Society of Evil, which was a multi-part story over the course of a year and a half, which was kind of unheard of back in the 1940s. I know they're going to go ahead and put that out in a trade paperback set, and I'm excited about that because you don't see those early stories reprinted that often. I'm always surprised when we're comic book shopping that some of the 70s Shazam comics go for such a high price. Is that when he first came to DC? And it's is that D- driving yeah. the price up? Well, or? it's when DC acquired the the Fawcett comic line and then, of course, basically created Earth-S, another multi-Earth at that point, because they acquired 
oh gosh, Sargon the Sorcerer and Ibis the Invincible and of course all of the Marvel family, maybe a few others. I'm trying to remember which ones they might have acquired. So that was, yeah, that's when Shazam first came in. Of course, by that point, they had to call it Shazam because Marvel had beat him to the punch and had their own Captain Marvel. As I understand, at the time, I think they even put Captain Marvel on the cover, but Shazam was bigger. And as I understand it with this new movie... I'm not even sure they're going to mention Captain Marvel at all. Hmm. They, they want to steer away from that, which they should, because literally, what, weeks before, Captain Marvel's going to be in the theaters from Marvel Studios. So interesting that really two Captain Marvel movies are coming out in a, in a time span of a few weeks apart from each other. But uh, I think they're, yeah, marketing-wise, it's going to be nothing but Shazam. And I don't know what I think of the trailer. I mean, eh, I, I'm not sure. I... Just trailer-wise, I was a little disappointed that it told so much of the origin story. I mean, there's not really much left, I think. And, of course, we know it, but, you know, I don't know. They pretty much told all of that. I guess the good news is we don't... I don't really know what's going to happen after that. Well, and and how many times is Warner Brothers going to re-edit it? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, you can watch the trailer for Justice League, and there are several key scenes in that that never made it into the, the theaters, and we may never even see... So once it goes through the test audiences and someone says, no, this isn't right, some of those scenes might not even be in the studio version or the theater versions. Uh, I do agree that they threw a lot in there. I don't know if you had... You you didn't have to do the whole origin story in the the trailer, which we pretty much got for the most part. I think you could have done a little less, but you know, nowadays it seems like they throw everything in the trailer. Um, You can still get some surprises, but... Uh, if you want to be totally surprised, you really have to avoid the trailers. Certainly anything beyond the teaser trailer, because I'm sure that we'll see even more stuff in forthcoming trailers that'll even more so ruin the movie. Right, right. I went through a period of not watching trailers at all, but now they're so hyped up so much. And Comic-Con, I mean, I was rushing to watch these trailers. But I'm also hoping, you know, if I don't watch any more trailers by the time the movie comes out, I'll have forgotten what I saw. One last thing. I think sometimes, though, it does help to see these trailers because it can also give you a little bit of hope. Because I was low expectations on Aquaman. I'm thinking, well, we're less than six months away and I've seen nothing. The trailer did excite me for Aquaman. I think, although it's not my Aquaman, again, it certainly is nothing like the Aquaman I grew up with. I like Jason Momoa and I liked what I saw in the trailer for the most part. I'm curious to see what they what they can do with it. And that's the only superhero we're movie we're getting over the holidays, there's nothing else coming out, so that that's that it's not going to have much superhero competition at that point. Hmm. So I think it stands a chance of doing well. Well, you know, I hate to interrupt our comic movie podcast with uh, <laughs> something about classic horror, but uh, let's listen to a voicemail we got. If, if you remember, in our last episode, we talked about the greatest vampire movie of the '70s, perhaps all time, House of Dark Shadows, <laughs> and we have uh, Chris Franklin, our good friend from the Supermates podcast and the Superman Movie Minute and the JLU podcast uh, that took a moment to call in, and we really appreciate it. Let's hear what he had to say about Dark Shadows in that episode. Hey, Rich and Jeff. This is Chris Franklin uh, from the uh, Fire and Water Podcast Network. I really enjoyed your Dark Shadows episode, your second Dark Shadows episode uh, with Steve Turek. Uh, That was a lot of fun. Uh, I still am just the mind boggles that that Steve got through the whole series in four months. Uh, I have been watching it since January. 
and I'm only on like episode 730 something. Um, right now I'm in the middle of the, uh, 1897 storyline, uh, you know, where Barnabas has gone back in time and we meet Quentin when he's not a ghost. Uh, and right now actually Laura has just shown up the Phoenix and I didn't even start with the, uh, the first episode. I started with the, the 200s, 210 around there where Barnabas first shows up. So I'm going to have to go back and watch those early ones, uh, later. Uh, but uh, I really enjoyed your episode on the movies. I have not seen Night of Dark Shadows. I've seen House of Dark Shadows. I have Night of Dark Shadows on the DVR from Turner Classic Movies, and I plan on watching it once I get through the series. I have seen House of Dark Shadows. I saw it a few years back before I started watching uh, Dark Shadows again all the way through. I, I had seen enough on sci-fi and had seen, uh, read enough about Dark Shadows to have a good idea of what happened with Barnabas and how he was introduced. And uh, the first time I watched House of Dark Shadows, I was a little perplexed about how fast things were moving. Uh, it did seem like they crammed a whole lot in the movie, I will agree there. But it is very atmospheric, and uh, it's it's kind of mean. It's got this, like, mean, nasty quality about it that, that the TV show doesn't have. I mean, I guess it's, you know, characters are being, they did things that they couldn't do on the regular show in the, in the regular timeline, uh, by vampirizing main characters and killing them off. And, uh, so it's just got this, you know, uh, kill them all kind of vibe to it, uh, which is kind of neat. So I'm looking forward to watching Night of Dark Shadows, even though I know it's not really a complete film, unfortunately, but, uh, just want to say uh, you guys are doing a fantastic job, as always. Enjoyed hearing Steve on the show and all the reports from Monster Bash, and I'm definitely going to have to get to Monster Bash one of these years and, and, and meet up with all you guys. Sounds like a lot of fun. So just thought I'd check in. Keep up the great work. This is Chris Franklin. Bye. Thank you for the voicemail, Chris. That was great. And you know what? You're still doing incredible with your run of Dark Shadows. I mean, what? 500 plus episodes or 730 that? that's nothing to sneeze at no. my gosh yeah so that's mind boggling in itself i don't know can we can we pull off a third dark shadows episode i mean we could go over the contemporary series and the johnny depp movie do we want to put ourselves to that i don't know i i don't have fond memories of the johnny depp movie i don't know I don't know. That's I don't know. We, let's, maybe maybe uh, some of our listeners could let us know. Do you want to hear another episode, or are you sick of it? I think we could probably do a third. <laughs> you know, I would talk point, about it at any time. At some point next year, maybe in the spring. Yeah. It's become our thing, right? So why not see if we can pull off another episode? I think I think everyone would enjoy it. And I don't think we'd have to twist too many hands to, to, uh, to talk about it. Um, yeah, thank you for that voicemail. Yep, thanks, Chris. Rich, let's take it away. Let's uh, talk about Bela Lugosi before we get into the movies. Uh, what what do we know about the man? Bela Lugosi, see Bela, Bela. I'm going to switch <laughs> back and forth. Born on October 20th, 1882. He was born Bela Blasco in Lugos, Austria, Hungary, which I believe is now Romania. And he was the youngest of four children. His father wanted him to be a banker. He did not. He had grander visions for his life, and this led to a lot of arguments with his father and uh, eventually him leaving home. He dropped out of school at the age of 12. Uh, He began acting 1901-1902 on stage. Uh, He was playing some small roles in uh, in operas and uh, Shakespearean productions. 
During World War One, he was an infantryman in the Austro-Hungarian Army uh, from 1914 to 1916 in the Ski Patrol, which I thought was kind of cool. Hmm. If I recall correctly, we uh, Carl and I watched the was it the Dark Prince? I believe is the title of it. The Belagosi documentary that aired back in the day on the Biography Channel when they did that wonderful series. And I had recorded it off of the, uh, I think it was the History Channel, International Channel or something. Really good hour-long documentary. And it talked about, I think he got injured towards the end of World War One, and he was actually uh, in a hospital when it ended. He returned to acting, but uh, he was also kind of an activist at the time. And he was involved in the Hungarian Revolution of 1919. Unfortunately, he was on kind of the the losing side at that point. He was married, actually, prior to this. He, he got married to his the first of five wives, uh, Iona Schmick, if I'm correct with that pronunciation. He married her in 1917. His family, her family wasn't too fond of him. He was an actor. He was not to the level that they were hoping that she would marry, uh, mostly because he wasn't very rich. And being involved in the revolution, he had to flee his homeland and that was kind of the end of the marriage. Um, she had no desire to, to flee her home, and they got divorced by 1920. Around this time, he began to uh, do his first film work. He did a lot of uh, silent movies over in Europe, the first of which was called The Colonel in 1917. He eventually left Europe. Uh, he traveled from, uh, when he had to leave uh, Hungary, he traveled to Vienna, found his way to Berlin, and eventually came to the United States in Louisiana, of all places, which I thought was kind of unique. Um, and then eventually kind of headed out west towards Hollywood and made his first film in 1923 in Hollywood called The Silent Command. Uh, this movie still exists, and he plays a villain, actually, in it. He plays a, a madman threatening to bomb a bridge. Richard, I just wanted to ask, do we have access to any of the films he made in Europe before he came to the United States? Unfortunately, we don't. Most of those films uh, have been lost, but there are some, one of which is, at least portions of which exist, a movie that he did around 1920 called Der Tanz auf dem Vulkan, which is Dancing on a Volcano. It was actually released in the United States under the title Daughter of the Night. He plays kind of a heavy, kind of the bad guy in it. That American version is actually uh, available through Alpha Home Video. It's a silent film, obviously. It's not bad. I saw it a couple years ago. It's obviously missing a lot. You can kind of tell that there's some jumps. It is a uh, much shorter version of the original product. And a lot of times it makes the story seem a little disjointed, but that's probably the best example of the early silent films. Now, at least over in Europe. Now, The Silent Command, which was his first American silent film, that does exist. In fact, it's on YouTube, so it's easy to find. It's a good copy, it seems like. And he plays a bad guy in that one. And it, the clips that I saw in the documentary kind of make him look like, I mean, he's, it's kind of a traditional Lugosi mad scientist role. I haven't seen it. I have the, the film downloaded, so I'm going to go and uh, visit it for the first time here Hopefully soon. It's kind of on the top of my list. I'm really intrigued by it as I was doing research for this podcast. Around this time, of course, he had his second wife. He married Iona von Montag, I believe is how it's pronounced. I'm probably butchering that. He married her in 1921, 
and it lasted all of three years, divorcing her in 1924. Shortly thereafter, he debuts on the stage, doing his first performance as Count Dracula around 1927. In 1929, he marries for the third time a Beatrice Weeks. This marriage lasts all of five days. Uh, He didn't have luck with marriages, unfortunately. Uh, Of course, with 1929, sound films were coming into play, and he starts doing several films and starts becoming, I wouldn't say a household name, but he's, he's getting solid work out in Hollywood. A movie called The 13th Chair, which is, I believe he plays an inspector in that one. Uh, I have that one. Early uh, sound movie. A movie called Renegades, uh, which I've seen some clips of and looks uh, somewhat interesting. And then, of course, we get to 1931, and that's when he did, of course, Dracula and uh, made him a household name at that point. He becomes a U.S. citizen in 1931, He is asked to play the part of the monster. Of course, everyone knows this story. He was going to play the part of the monster in Frankenstein, and it was announced, and he turns down the role because he didn't want to be under all the makeup. It's single-handedly the biggest mistake of his career because at that point, he starts getting typecasted almost immediately in the films that he does. Um, He has high points, and we're going to talk about that as the podcast continues, but unfortunately... Because of the language barrier, uh, the fact that he never quite got rid of that European accent, and through just a lot of bad luck along the way, his his status would fluctuate in the 1930s, but by the time you get to the 40s, for the most part, he is strictly a B-horror actor forever in the shadow of Karloff. Doesn't mean his, his work isn't good, it's just that it's kind of far and few between the, the really solid efforts and there's a lot of lesser efforts along the way because he would take virtually any part that was that was offered to him at that point as the 30s and 40s progress because he, he needed to eat. He needed to keep the, the lights on. He needed to continue to work, uh, especially in the late 30s when horror films kind of went out of fashion for a few years he was able to continue to work because of his role as being a heavy. And that's kind of where the accent kind of came into play, but it it furthered that typecasting. I wanted to ask you about his pre-Dracula roles in sound movies with his thick accent. Do you know anything about the characters he played? Was he always the heavy? I mean, I had trouble understanding him in a couple of the movies we watched, and I just wonder prior to Dracula if that was an issue for him getting roles or if he was or maybe it was a plus for him getting roles he doesn't i mean there's not a lot of of sound films prior to dracula i mean there is uh the 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 13th chair 1929 it's which is actually i mean todd browning directed that film it's a good movie uh very hard to find i don't think it's ever been released commercially but it is limited sound. It's 1929. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, other films like Such Men Are Dangerous, Wild Company, uh, Renegades. I've seen some clips of that. He plays Sheikh Mohammed Halid. So the accent he certainly is not that of a sheikh, but it, he can play into it, use that to his advantage. A movie called Viennese Nights. He plays a Hungarian ambassador, Count von Ratz. And so again, his accent would would you know help out there. 
and then you know a few other films but then you get to Dracula so prior to that really the accent was was helping him but again it was the type of roles he was getting the accent kind of went with it post Dracula is where that typecasting comes into play because the accent becomes starts becoming a, a hindrance and really the mad scientist roles is what he is mostly being given although he wanted to do romantic leads he wanted to be uh, in comedies I mean there's an early 1930s interview where he talks about that he says that's kind of his goal he wants to to get away from the Dracula role because he knows he can do these other things he would brag to people about how he was in these Shakespearean productions over in Europe well early on in his career he was certainly in some low level Shakespearean productions but he but he was you know prolific in in silent films where of course that accent really didn't matter at that point it was the visual and he is he was a striking man and he was a handsome man and so that was that played into his advantage into the days of silent films it's that that language barrier which of course was problem for a lot of silent actors when sound came along they just didn't have the voice to go along with the face with Lugosi he had a voice but it unfortunately limited him in what he could do according to what Hollywood thought he could do and here's something I didn't realize also I mean when he made Dracula he was 49 years old so that could have also limited him post Dracula was just his age well and and certainly as you get to the late 1930s and 40s and as um, you begin to have that drug addiction starts, you know, really, it changes his appearance. I mean, he certainly is aging uh, as you watch some of these films. Uh, you know, you see that he's looking a lot older than he could or should by the time you get to the 1950s. I mean, certainly he's not a young man by that point, but he looks a lot older than he really, really was because the uh, you know his morphine addiction and, and various drug addictions put a lot of wear and tear on his body. Uh, he may have had a clearer mind towards the very end, but unfortunately, he really didn't have an opportunity to to show it. And when we get to Bride of Monster, there's a particular story about the the big speech that he has in that film and Ed Wood's concerns of whether he could pull it off. So, uh, if you know, when we get to that, I'll talk about that. But Yeah, well, we're talking about him now, though. It, would you say at his prime? I mean, Dracula and Murders in the Rue Morgue, would that... I think the 1930s his was his prime. I mean, you're thinking of other films he did. I mean, White Zombie, even his cameo role in Island of Lost Souls, Mark of the Vampire, Black Cat Raven, I mean... Early to mid-30s, I think he's at his peak. And by the time you get to even the late 30s, even when he plays the character of, of, of uh, Igor in Son of Frankenstein, he's second fiddle at that point. I mean, he's a supporting character. And really, very few times in the 1940s... I mean, he would take the lead role in a lot of B-films, Poverty Row films, which was not you know a hard thing to do. But mainstream, big Hollywood productions, they were far and few between. In fact, Return of the Vampire is considered his last starring role in a major Hollywood production. Because when you get to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, he's a supporting character. And any of the other films in which he was the lead actor in the 40s and 50s were more B flicks or, or Z-grade flicks when you get to films like Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla. I mean, you know, a dollar ninety-eight budget. 
he may have had the top you know bill in that but that really wasn't saying much yeah well so let's talk about him in his prime set the stage for us what was going on in 1932 well 1932 uh, of course a little thing called the great depression was making a big impact not just in the united states but around the world 13 million americans were unemployed that's that's more than 24.5% of the population, which I've heard about the Great Depression, obviously. I've learned about it. I never heard that number specifically. And when you hear that and you think like a fourth of the population was unemployed, that gives you a really good picture of what the Great Depression was was happening here in the States. But it was happening all over the world. There was the, you know, what happens in the United States influences many other countries around the world. So there was a, the Great Depression wasn't just here. And I think sometimes people tend to forget that. The ripple effect was that it happened in many other countries as well. Despite all of that, Franklin Delano Roosevelt wins the presidency. And uh, of course, it'd be the president for three terms, uh, which is the only president to I'm going to have to stretch my historical knowledge here. Can't help you. I know he was the last president to have that many terms. Whether or not he was the only president to have that many terms, that I don't know off the top of my head. Homework for next month, I guess. Not really movie related, but... Do they... Were they four-year terms? They were, yeah. So when did they institute law that you could only... After after that. Okay. After that. It was determined that two two terms uh, was the limit. And really... You know, he wins that third term because it's wartime. Of course, he dies while in office in that uh, in that third term, and, and uh, Vice President Truman takes uh, takes the presidency. After that is when they say, okay, two terms is enough. Gas was ten cents a gallon. A house could be yours for sixty five hundred dollars. Uh, you could buy a pound of hamburger for ten cents. The uh, BBC had did their very first experimental television broadcast in nineteen thirty two. The son of Charles Lindbergh was kidnapped in that same year. Al Capone was convicted for tax evasion. On uh, radio, Buck Rogers in the 25th century and Little Orphan Annie both made their debut. And a popular song of the day was Hey Brother, Can You Spare a Dime by Bing Crosby. Popular movies of the day, uh, Marx Brothers and Horse Feathers, which was their next to last film, for, am I thinking that correctly? Next to last film for Paramount Pictures. Uh, that's when they were Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and Zeppo, the four Marx Brothers. Uh, Scarface, which also starred Boris Karloff in a supporting role. Tarzan the Ape Man with Johnny Weissmuller, the first of the MGM series of films. Uh, speaking of Karloff, The Mask of Fu Manchu. And horror movies, well, we had a lot in 1932. We had The Mummy with Boris Karloff. You had White Zombie with uh, Bela Lugosi. You had The Old Dark House with Boris Karloff. Dr. X with Lionel Antwill. And many, many others came out that same year as well. And, of course, the movie we're going to talk about now, Murders in the Room Org.
Dr. Miracle, in the Rue Morgue, is guilty of four murders so far this week. And by now, perhaps a fifth. In this 1932 classic, based on a story by Edgar Allan Poe, Bela Lugosi plays Dr. Morocco, a mad scientist determined to prove the theory of evolution by mixing human blood with the blood of an ape named Eric. He kidnaps beautiful young women for his experiments, keeping them chained in his lab until he's done with them and disposes of them through a trap door. This was the very end of the pre-code era, where people were starting to crack down on the content of of movies. So you see in these movies, and Murders in the Rue Morgue is a prime example, things that you would not see, I'd say, after 35 or so. Also, horror movies were sort of in a, a bubble at this time. They were very, very popular. But their popularity in a couple of years would be waning. So you will have a gap like between 35 and probably 39 where the quality of horror movies and the number of them is not significant. But yeah, this was definitely a peak with horror movies. Well, and you see actors like Lugosi and Karloff who had become so prolific in horror films are now faced to try to do some non-horror films. You know, Karloff starts doing his Mr. Wong detective series uh, Lugosi will do several chapter serials around this time, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, their work, you know, they were having to scramble to find work and they were having to take what was available to them because they were horror movie actors primarily. You know, Lugosi in particular struggled because, again, he had the the voice that of a, of a villain in their mind. And, and so he had to kind of wait for whatever villainous roles kind of came up, you know, came his way because the horror movies simply weren't there. By 1939, the horror movie cycle kind of kicked back again. But by that point, they had kind of taken a step down. They weren't the A attraction for the most part that they were in the early to mid-30s. They were now considered B flicks. Even though there's a lot of good ones that came out, they were considered less than many of the other big blockbusters that were coming out at that point. But in the early to mid-30s, with films like Dracula and Frankenstein, they were considered top tier. And unfortunately, that didn't last very long. As you said, by the 35, 30, well, really 36 and 37, 38, those years were very, very uh, lean years for horror films. And then 39, I always say, when Son of Frankenstein came out, that sort of revitalized it. But you look at any horror movie there or after, very different sometimes in tone than the ones you'd find up through 35. Lugosi kept busy, though. Like 1932, he did a lot of films besides Murders in the Rue Morgue. He did uh, Shandu the Magician, where he played the villain. He played, of course, we mentioned White Zombie, uh, The Death Kiss, which was a murder mystery. Of course, Island of Lost Souls, where he had a cameo role in that. So, uh, you know, and even on into 33, he kept very busy with films post-Murders in the Rue Morgue, which we'll talk about. You know, besides the horror films, anything close to that genre, murder mysteries and such, where they needed a villainous role, 
he was kind of almost a go-to guy for a lot of these films. What do you think of Murders in the Rue Morgue? Do you like it? You know, it's been a few years since I've seen this one. There's a lot about this movie that I like. It is a short film. That's primarily because the censors really had their way with it. Um, it was originally an 80-minute film, and it comes off to be, I think, 61 minutes now. So nearly 20 minutes of footage was cut from this movie. Again, even in the pre-code days, they there were things that they simply weren't going to pass. And a lot of that had to do with torture and uh, the death scene of the street woman played by Arlene Francis, who, it's funny thing is, I will sometimes stay up late and watch old game shows on this game show network called Buzzer, and they play What's My Line a lot. She was actually a regular on that show for many, many years, and it's like, to me, that version of Arlene Francis meant, didn't seem anything like what we saw in this movie. But a lot of her scenes got cut, and a lot of the violence and the fight scene and the two men fighting for her, that was also apparently a lot more graphic originally. I like the movie. It's it's very uneven. There's There's some crazy things that happen in the course of this movie. Some comedic moments when... The police are questioning Pierre Dupin. Uh, du- du- Dupin? Dupin? Oh, gosh, I'm horrible at name. <laughs> Pierre. We'll just call him Pierre. Yeah, yeah. We get sidetracked with this like comedic moment with these three characters of different nationalities. Fun, you know, I guess, in a way, but very odd and inappropriate for what was supposed to be a tense moment because Eric has, has kidnapped Camille. They don't even know the fate of, was it her mother or the woman uh, with her in the room? I can't remember if that was her mother or, or the maid. I, I or think it was just the, just the ser- servant, yeah. housekeeper. They didn't even know where she was at that point. And it just seemed so out of place. But again, if you take that out, then the movie, I mean, would have lost, I don't know, that one on for, it seemed like, a couple minutes. So you'd even be two more minutes short. So it was good. Not, I mean, Lugosi was amazing in it as Dr. Morocco. He had that unibrow, which just was funny, yet, you know, very evil. He did very well in this movie, but there's parts of this movie that just seemed a little odd to me. I had a different experience this time than when I watched it last time. I liked it much, much more this time. I always have thought of it as being sort of a slight movie because of the running time, but it is a very lush production. I mean, there are... It's beautifully filmed. There are a lot of people as extras in the crowd, and it it, it looks beautiful. It's it's an A-plus production, I believe. Uh, there's a lot of German expressionism present in this film. I, I, I got a lot of Cabinet of Dr. Caligari vibes at time with some of the, the scenes of the city and, and the way it was presented. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it visually... A stunning film. Again, you've got some some very chilling scenes. Although you know his his laboratory seemed a little sparse at times. You've you've got that torture sequence and the little the trap door, which every good scientist has to have. Place your, you know, you got to have the 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 pull switch to blow everything up, and you got to have the trap door to dump the bodies into the river below. Yeah, it was there was definitely some some great visuals going on in the film, which. Enhance it. I think if you didn't have that, then you and you had some of those other oddball comedic moments in the movie, and if you didn't have Lugosi, this film would be kind of forgotten. It would just be along with a lot of other murder mysteries, 
old dark house films that are very prevalent in the 30s, early to mid 30s that end up getting put on the the public domain sets. But because you've got Lugosi and because you've got uh, some fantastic visuals and it's a well-made film, uh, it's that part of it stand helps it stand out. Yeah, and the scene you mentioned with them arguing about if it was Italian, Danish, or German when they heard, that's where it stopped for me. That's where it pulled out. I would rather it be a shorter movie and then pull that out of there. Now, you know, that comic relief may have been needed if it was more uh, graphic in its full running time, but I, I think they should have just pulled it and had a, a shorter movie. There was a lot of writers on this one, and so I wonder if in the midst of, of the production... I think explains why you've got a lot of unevenness. It keeps going from from very dark, very intense with the torture sequences to then this this comedic moment. Who wrote what? I, I'd really like to know because it seems like there's definitely a lot of different tones. I mean, you've got the screenplay is by Tom Reed, Dale Van Every, the legendary John Huston, yeah. and Ethel Kelly. It's adapted originally by Robert Flory, who was also the director. So a lot of hands in the writing of this. And you've got some interesting people. Tom Reed did a movie called The Loves of Edgar Allan Poe, which is apparently a, was a 30s or 40s biography on Edgar Allan Poe, which now I'm, I'm beyond curious on to see how they approached, uh, I've never heard of this movie before, so I've got to see if I can find it to to see how you know they approached the rather dark life that Poe had towards the end. Uh, but also, Tom Reed contributed to Bride of Frankenstein. What he contributed, I don't know, but did he contribute some more of the comedic moments? Maybe he's involved in some of the more comedy. I don't know. Dale Van Every didn't do a lot of uh, genre writing, but he did produce Dr. Cyclops, which I thought was interesting. You've got John Huston, of course, that, that name kind of threw me. I was like, surely that's not the John Huston, right. but no, it is. Legendary director and actor, uh, so many films, African Queen, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, we could go on and on. And then you got Ethel Kelly, who had only one other writing credit, and that was The Deciding Kiss in 1918, wow. which I question if that's the same person. That's a big gap, and why didn't she do anything else? So sometimes, you know, that's IMDb, and I'm going to say... I just can't imagine that's the same person. Uh, but there's nothing on Ethel Kelly, so you know who knows hmm. if that was even a real person. Now Robert Flory, he did a lot of a lot of films. He directed uh, episodes of The Twilight Zone. So I mean, towards the end of his career, uh, The Outer Limits, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Thriller. But movie wise, I mean, he did The Marx Brothers in The Coconuts in 1929. He did a couple of Peter Lorre films. Face Behind the Mask and The Beast with Five Fingers. He did a Tarzan movie, Tarzan and the Mermaids. He was all across the board of genres. Clearly, the the style of the film, I mean, I'm going to give some of that to Robert Flory, and I have a feeling, based on some of his other credits, that his participation in the film may have been some of the more traditional horror elements, because I think he understood that. Again, if you're looking at Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, Alfred Hitchcock, the Peter Lorre films, he understood horror and i'm willing to bet that maybe some of the more lighthearted moments might come from some of the other writers now i what john houston contributed i'd love to know yeah i saw that it was additional dialogue yeah i mean which could that be the comedy sequence i don't know i mean i can't imagine john houston coming up that witty but this is early on in his career so true true 
I think the look of the film, and I had forgotten this till I just looked at my notes, the cinematographer was Carl Freund. So he had done The Mummy and later did, well, Mummy was the same year, but Mad Love. I mean, he definitely had the style. I bet the, the lush look and production value probably comes from him as much or more than it does from the director. I would agree. Okay, I would agree with that. Makeup by Jack Pierce, so oh, yeah. we. I, I think the Bella's unibrow is overlooked in the career of <laughs> Jack Pierce. Uh, it is a an astounding unibrow. It, it works very well for this movie. Now you know one of the the it's almost comedy flaw now, comedic flaw is the. Uh, is Eric a gorilla or is he a chimpanzee? It depends on where you're looking at it. He, he, does, he does tend to fluctuate a little bit depending on is it the man in the suit? Is it stock footage? I can't imagine that audiences would have overlooked that in 1932, but maybe they just didn't care. And I guess maybe 1932, how many people actually had seen a chimpanzee or gorilla? Unless you went to a zoo, chances are you never had seen one. So you probably just... Well, it's they're all apes, right? So I, maybe people didn't notice. Now, of course, it's pretty obvious. And it's like, well, you know, Carla and her scientific brain started to explode at that point. And I said, nope, nope, nope. You got to turn it. <laughs> I got to turn it off. I said, because it's that way through the whole movie. Depending on where you see him, he's an ape or he's a, you know, a chimpanzee or a gorilla. So. Yeah, and he's pretty good. The body of him. I was thinking of some other movie, I guess, because when I watched this again, it wasn't the like man in an ape suit that I was expecting. So I thought that was pretty good. But yeah, those close-ups with the other face and they fuzz it, make it a little fuzzy, but still it's, yeah, it's pretty bad. And speaking of the, uh, going back to the intense scenes, the torture, that is, the, the scene that is left is pretty intense. I mean, she, intense, the yeah. woman's screaming and crying the whole time and well, he's uh, taking that knife and he's just kind of like grinding it and seeing you don't see the knife penetrate the skin but you're seeing on the other side of her arm you know what he's doing yeah and he just asks her are you in pain it will only last a little longer i mean that's it's pretty pretty it's graphic yeah he's pretty sadistic he's pretty sadistic he plays a lot of stereotypical mad scientist i think this character is one of his more sadistic uh he does a lot of you know, injecting people and tying them up to tables and this and that. This is full-blown torturous. It harkens to the Black Cat and the the skinning of, of Karloff's character in that movie, which was graphic for 1934 purposes, but much more tame than what we get here, I think, anyway. What do you know about Burt Roach, who played Paul? Do you know anything about him? Uh, no, I don't. He has an incredible number of credits, 358, uh, working through 1951. Well, he plays Pierre's roommate. And unfortunately, in this day and age, it's very hard to not get a chuckle or two in, in their relationship. They're roommates. And this his character, this friend Paul, is... I mean, he's talking like he's his his wife, you know. He's saying, Pierre, why don't you go down to the morgue and live instead of making a morgue out of our home? It just was very comical to me. And of yeah. course, it's neither one is gay. They have women, you know. And it, it was a more innocent time then, I guess. Well, I, and you do get a lot of gay undertones in a lot of films, especially in, in this pre-code era. 
and they begin to take a lot of that out post-code. So, you know, any idea what they were thinking, you know, when they were writing it, that may very well been their intent to to throw that in, or it just may be we're looking at it with different eyes now. But yeah, that's that's always made me chuckle a little bit. It's like, because even just a few years later, you wouldn't kind of see that in movies. So uh, that's the fun of pre-code films, is that there's just a lot of stuff that surprises you when you see these old films. I remember seeing Tarzan the Ape Man and seeing Jane naked underwater, and it, this was on regular television. They clearly weren't paying attention to the print they were playing. And I'm like, is she naked? Oh, my God. And I was like, you know, 12-year-old seeing a naked Jane underwater. <laughs> you're like, holy heck. I remember talking about that at a Cub Scout meeting and my mom telling me to be quiet. <laughs> um, so, yeah, pre-code stuff, you can see a lot of different things sexually, comedically, violently that you wouldn't get just a few years later. And what do you think of the ending? It's sort of a little mini King Kong. It is. It is. Uh, early, especially 30s and 40s films, they they tend to end. You know, they just, you know, the ending comes and then, bang, that's it. We're not quite to the era of boy meets girl and they get married by the end of the film. You start seeing that a little bit more. But these early horror films, a lot of them just kind of like, they, they have their conclusion and that's it, the end. And it's a, you know, universal picture pops up and... Maybe a good cast is worth repeating. I, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, very, very King Kong-like, yeah. What do you know about Sydney Fox? Oh, I know she only has, like, 15 credits. I thought, the name is familiar. I thought, I expected to see more of her when I looked up her other credits. What do you know about her? Very sad career uh, in life, actually. Now, she receives top billing in this movie. She receives billing over Bela Lugosi, and there's probably a pretty good reason why. She only starred in 15 films between 1931 and 1934. Wow. Pause for a moment. Only 15 films, but in three years. In three years. That's a lot. That is is true. She was rumored to have a less-than-professional relationship with Carl Lindley Jr. at Universal, which would probably be why she received top billing over Bela Lugosi in Murders in the Rue Morgue. That actually was a problem for her and most likely led to her getting married in 1932 in an effort to try to salvage her career because I believe that Carl was opening a lot of doors for her, but a lot of others were being shut because she was viewed as just somebody who was perhaps having a relationship with the top exec. Are you really that talented? She was very pretty. She was talented, but a lot of that was getting overlooked. So she marries a gentleman in 1932 and unfortunately... It was kind of the the start of a very bad turn for her personally. Her film career ends by 1934. The the film rolls dry up. She does some stage work, some radio work. Meanwhile, her she's in a very unhappy and abusive marriage. Uh, this leads to depression, a lot of mental illness. November 15th, 1942, at the age of 34, she overdoses on sleeping pills and is found in her Beverly Hills bedroom. Mm. Unfortunately, I don't know if you could call her a victim of Hollywood, but I think in a way, yes, because I think she, you know, whether she intended to have the relationship to further her career or it just kind of happened, unfortunately, it kind of blacklisted her from Hollywood. Then, of course, being in an abusive marriage didn't help and uh, dying at the age of 34, 
being out of work almost eight years at that point, doing just little bit parts, meanwhile being in a bad marriage, very unfortunate end to someone who is very, very attractive, and uh, apparently several of her other films, she showed a lot of promise, uh, and unfortunately just never really had the opportunity to to take that opportunity and, and take it to the next level. Hmm. I don't think she had the same fate as Sidney Fox, but we ran across the same thing when we talked about Lady and the Monster, that the actress that was in a relationship with the studio head or something and was given top billing in a movie. Get you opportunities in the short term, but not in the long term, unfortunately. Leon Ames, on a brighter note, had a very long career. He played Pierre. Uh, A lot of murder mysteries. Uh, He was in the Charlie Chan series, Mr. Moto series, the Thin Man series. But also some big films, Meet Me in St. Louis, Postman Always Rings Twice. By the time the 50s and 60s roll around, he does a lot of television work. His last movie was Peggy Sue Got Married in 1986. I saw that. Which, yes, you you imagine, it's like he starts with Lugosi and Murders in the Room Morgue in 1932 and ends up in Peggy Sue Got Married. (laughs) You wouldn't think that's the same actor. He died at uh, the age of 91 in 1993, so he had a very long and a successful career in obviously a wide variety of films. Uh, This movie was part of the original Shock Theater package and was one of the very first Universal films broadcast on television, actually. Ironically, though, I feel that by the time the 70s and 80s rolled around, it, it didn't get talked a lot about. I don't remember hearing about this movie a lot when I was discovering the Universal films in the 30s and 40s. It was getting overlooked by all the other... Uh, other films, the monster films, it does get released by Universal in their VHS package, but uh, I don't believe it was one of the first ones released. I think it was maybe midstream, and it did get released on DVD, and is still available. So you can certainly get this. It's part of the Bella Lugosi collection, which you can get for less than twenty dollars, which is really almost you should call it the Bella Lugosi Boris Karloff collection because it has five films. Murders in the Room Morgue is the only one that stars just Lugosi, the others being Black Cat, The Raven, uh, The Invisible Ray, and Black Friday, all of which have Karloff, and at least two of those are Lugosi in supporting roles to Karloff. But it's also available on the Universal Vault series by itself for $15. The Universal Vault series is a ripoff as far as I'm concerned. If you can find the box sets, that's the way to go. The only thing I remember people complaining about the Bell Lugosi collection and some of the sets that were released about that time was that they were released on the dual-sided DVDs and some older DVD players had a hard time playing them. I don't think that's the problem with newer ones. I remember that my DVD player would stick uh, right after the Universal logo and I'd have to a lot of times take it out, put it back in, but I don't have that problem now with my Blu-ray player. Mm. So... I think that the newer players have corrected that, but if you have an older DVD player, you may run across that problem. I don't think that the quality is any different between the original DVD and the Universal. I've seen the Universal DVDs, uh, Universal Vault DVDs. They're 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 bare bones. I don't think they're worth the price. Just one movie for fifteen bucks, and you get nothing else with it. You don't even get trailers with them most of the time. So, do some digging. I know that it was just on Amazon just a few days ago. You can find that that set for less than twenty dollars, and you're getting five great Lugosi Karloff films. So I have to ask you, what did Carla think of the science of this movie? And and first, I want to say that 
still talking about pre-code and things, I think probably evolution at the time. Well, it was controversial to the audience that was watching Dr. Miracle and his show. I think it was probably a, a controversial subject in movies as well. But, you know, to prove the theory of evolution, he's going to mix the ape and the human blood. I don't know how that proves evolution. <laughs> no, her brain exploded at that. She, she was like... Why? How is that even, you know, I said, well, I got to think of the time. And she's like, yes, but even in 1932, I think they would have known. And I said, yes, but that's what makes him a mad scientist. This is one of those 1930s science films that really doesn't have any logic to it. So you just kind of check your brain at the door and you just got to go with it. Yeah, it's just the setup. I mean, it gets him in his lab, kidnapping women, drawing their blood and a big guy in an ape suit. I mean, that's really all you need. She loved Lugosi in it. She kind of had the same thoughts I did is that there was just an unevenness to it. Sometimes with some of the odd comedic moments, which as funny as they were, seem odd place. But then again, if you take them out, like I said, then you're, you're down to like a 55 minute movie, uh, which is very short, even by B movie standards. There's only a handful of films that come in that short. I think there's a Karloff movie that comes in, is it The Invisible Menace, I think, clocks in at 55 minutes. That was all they had. They didn't even take any footage out of that. Uh, they they barely had enough for a movie on that one. Um, this one, you know, I'd love to... Of course, those scenes are probably never going to resurface, but I'd love to, to have seen the 20 minutes they cut out. Very curious to see how intense it would have got. Any last words on this? Do we want to say how we like it compared to the other two, or do we want to save that for the end? Um... Why don't we save that to the end? Okay. I think uh, I, I will say though that you know I, I do like it. It's it's classic Lugosi. I wouldn't say it was the best that he did in Thirty Two. I think he did some other films that were probably better than this one, but better than some of his other uh, works around the same time. So probably maybe midstream for Lugosi films around this time period. Yeah, and like I said, I like it better than the time I saw it last time. So maybe it's one that will improve on further viewings, but I I liked it quite a bit this time. As has become customary, our good friend Steve Turek has done his homework, has watched these movies, and phoned in with his opinions. We've just talked about uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue. Let's see what Steve Turek thought about it. Hi, gentlemen. How are you guys doing today? Um, This is Steve Turek calling to leave you feedback on Murder at the Rue Morgue. I want to say that I enjoyed it. I remember watching it before, and of course, Bella Lugosi is always wonderful in it as Dr. Miracle. Um, some things I didn't remember from when I last saw the film, which was some years ago, was like Leon Ames as Pierre was also the father in Meet Me in St. Louis. Because I was looking at him thinking he's very familiar. And then, of course, I looked at his filmography and realized, oh, Meet Me in St. Louis, which is a wonderful musical, Judy Garland and stuff. And um, really, it was it was enjoyable, and also with um, Charles Gamora playing the gorilla, uh, it was he did an excellent job as as always in that capacity, and um, it, it was it was a fun movie to watch. I mean, is it really a horror movie or is it more of a mystery movie? You know, back then, I guess this would be considered a horror film, um, even though there wasn't that many fatalities. Um, I heard, if I remember correctly, when reading about it, it didn't. It was not a big blockbuster. It was a bomb at the box office, 
And I think because of this film, it was one of the reasons where Universal ended its contract with Bella Lugosi or something like that. Of course, I'm relying on the wonderful knowledge of Wikipedia, so who knows how accurate that is. Um, otherwise, I want to say I give this movie um, 7 out of 10 Dr. Miracle unibrows. All right. I'll give you feedback on the next two movies as the day goes on. Talk to you later. Bye. What's next in the life of Lugosi, Richard? Well, I mean, he's he's very uh, busy around this time period. He's doing a lot of movies, chapter serials, post-1932. Uh, uh, 1933, Lugosi does a chapter serial called The Whispering Shadow, uh, a movie called Night of Terror, which is hard to find. I believe that he, he plays a character called Dagar. I think it's like an old Dark House movie. I have it. It's been a lot of years since I've seen it. Does a uh, part of the comedic film International House, which stars W.C. Fields, George Burns, Gracie Allen. He plays General Nicholas Bronowski Petronovich. <laughs> I, I remember he was kind of the stereotypical European, you know, uh, military guy in this one for comedic purposes. Of course, he does The Black Cat. 1934, as Dr. Uh, Vitas Wardegast, alongside Karloff. Uh, he appears again with Karloff in a comedic appearance in Gift of Gab, a little cameo appearance. Uh, he does another Shandu movie, but this time playing the lead role of Shandu in a chapter serial called The Return of Shandu. I'm familiar with the Shandu character. I've, I've listened to the old radio show. He was miscast in that. He, he was better as a villain. He really didn't fit the part of Frank Chandler that, to me, uh, I think was was a mistake. Did they edit it to make a, a movie? Is there a movie yeah, called most, Return most, of Shandu? Yeah, most chapter serials, they would get one or two films from. So I, you can find the Whispering Shadow movie version. A lot of times with chapter serials over the course of 12, 13, 15 chapters, there's a couple of different storylines interconnected with cliffhangers and chase scenes. And so they would take maybe part of the story. A lot of times you do feel like you're only getting part of it. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It depends on the chapter serial. But yes, Return of Chandu, you, you probably have seen seen that as, as the abbreviated version. He plays Mr. Fu Wong in The Mysterious Mr. Wong, uh, which has nothing to do with Karloff's Wong series, which where he plays a Charlie Chan wannabe. 1935, of course... He does the Mark of the Vampire, you know, is, is a classic with one of the most disappointing endings, I think. And we'll just leave it at that if you haven't seen it. Uh, he's with Karloff again and the Raven. Uh, there we go. Shandua Magic Island is the movie you might have seen, which is hmm. from the chapter serial. Murder by Television. He makes his Hammer debut in 1935's Phantom Ship, which I think is worth mentioning. Uh, the Invisible Ray in 36. Then you get into those lean years. He plays uh, a character in a 1936 movie called Postal Inspector, which is, I, I've never seen it, but it's supposedly it's a musical. I, I, my mind, still trying to wrap that, you know, I just, I don't know. I have it. I need to just sit down and watch it, but I've heard it's really bad. He does a chapter serial uh, called Shadow of Chinatown. He plays Victor Potin, a Eurasian mad scientist. And, and I will pause here to say, I, I just finished that this morning and it's rough. <laughs> I love chapter serials and they really weren't designed to be seen all in one bulk. 
And when you do that, sometimes the inadequacies really shine because they are they can be repetitious. Cliffhanger after cliffhanger, chasing after chasing. Yeah, he's playing a Eurasian scientist, folks, and there's just a lot of Caucasian actors playing Asian characters. There's a lot of politically incorrect stuff going on. Very cheaply made. There's some really bad opening music. There's a, uh, a fun little book out called Sinister Serials of Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, and Lon Chaney Jr. by Leonard J. Cole. And he goes into to a great detail in all of the chapter serials that they did, including Boris Karloff's uh, Hope Diamond Mystery, which at the time the book was put out was not a widely seen chapter serial, and it had not been released by Serial Squadron, which was its first home video release. The reading that is actually interesting to see how accurate he was compared to what uh, we know now about that. He does talk about Shadows of Chinatown. He seems to like the opening music. For being made in 36, to me, it felt like something made in 29 or 30. Limited sound quality. There's a lot of fight scenes where there's just no music, no sound effects. Silent, like you would expect from a an early film of 1929, 1930. Anyway, I'll be actually covering that on my blog probably later on in the month, maybe close to the 16th of August, you know, an anniversary of, of his uh, passing. It's an interesting, interesting film. I'll leave it at that. He does some other chapter serials, SOS Coast Guard, which I haven't seen, but I'm going to see. The Phantom Creeps, which I have seen, and that's, it's fun. You've got the big robot, which is a iconic piece of movie history. You see a lot of clips in that. Rob Zombie uses that robot during his concerts. He, he loves this a lot. 1939, he's back at Universal as uh, Igor in The Son of Frankenstein, but clearly playing second fiddle to Karloff at this point. Rattle off films here The Gorilla, The Human Monster, The Saints Double Trouble, The Devil Bat, You'll Find Out, Invisible Ghost, Black Cat. Spooks Run Wild, The Wolfman, Black Dragons, Ghost of Frankenstein, on and on. A lot of Poverty Row flicks by this point. He does a few good films here and there, but then there's just a lot of mad scientist roles, cheaply made films. A lot of these films weren't seen for a lot of years. Alpha Video made a lot of them available back in the day, and I, I still have most of my Alpha Video copies of them. And they're really still the best versions out there. They're not well-made films. Some are better than others. Devil Bat's a fun film. I think that's been given a Blu-ray release. And I think the print is probably better. But some of these films, they're only as good as they're going to be. And you could put them on a Blu-ray and it's just not going <laughs> to make him any better. Like The Corpse Vanishes. Uh, some of these are universal films where he has supporting roles as butlers. Night Monster, I think he is that. And The Black Cat, I think he plays a butler in that one. The comedy films he did with these side kids. In 1943, he does Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. He plays the monster in this one. And, I, and this is, to me, is just so symbolic of the tragedy of his life. It's made, he's supposed to be speaking in the role, and he's supposed to be blind. And ultimately, both of those plot points are taken out. And... What you have now is a monster that stumbles around with his arms out in front of him. No explanation that he's supposed to be blind, so he just kind of looks like a lumbering beast. You see Lugosi's lips moving at times, but you don't hear anything. And so you wonder what's going on there. 
it cripples his performance at times, unfortunately. You know, he's he was never going to be a Karloff, but I think he, he could have done better in the role if if the last-minute editing wouldn't have occurred, which ultimately, I think, hurt his performance. And, and what is it's still a fun film. It's the first big monster bash between, you know, two big universal monsters. 1943, so on a personal level as well, Lugosi's beginning to, to suffer. He is now married for a fourth time. He's been married to Lillian Arch since 1933. He has, I believe by this point, his son is born, Bella Lugosi Jr. And uh, he's also suffering, though, from chronic back pains, which is believed to have started during his uh, time in World War One, And it gets progressively worse as the 1940s move along. He's taking uh, various painkillers, trying to deaden the pain. And over the years, we see that addiction just grow and grow and grow until he gets addicted to morphine. This time period was the early early stages of it, really. And it was not really prevalent yet in his physical performance. But there was still, I think, some frustration because his roles were, were on the verge of beginning to dwindle. And as, as we get into the next film, he has one last blast where he gets to be in the starring role, and that's the movie Return of the Vampire, which was supposedly supposed to be a, a straightforward sequel to Dracula. Universal felt like they had the rights to the character, which clearly they don't. But at the time, they were, they were threatening some legal action. Columbia Pictures didn't want to mess with it. So they moved forward with making a vampire flick, it's not about Dracula, but really, it's Lugosi reprising that role of Dracula for the first time in, uh, I guess, what would be, what, 12 years at that point. We get to, I think, especially in this time period, in one of the best films that he did, Return of the Vampire. This 1943 movie that some claim is an unofficial sequel to Dracula, Bela Lugosi plays Armin Tesla, a vampire released from his coffin during World War II. He recruits his old werewolf lackey, Andreas, to help him seek revenge on the descendants of vampire hunters who staked him some 24 years ago. <laughs> I had the opposite with this. I remember watching it and really, really liking it. I didn't like it as much this time. Lugosi's 61 now. Really, he's he's too old to be playing Dracula. 
I mean, he's better when he does him and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, I believe. It's interesting you say about his back pain because I wondered. He can hardly move in this movie. He He's at a, a party, I believe, uh, where he's taking on the, the uh, different character to hide who he's, his true identity. He can barely walk down two steps into the ballroom or, or wherever the party is. Very stiff. We don't see him for the first time till 27 minutes into the movie. We see his back. Even when he's walking through the woods, the collar of his cape is sticking out, obscuring his face. I, I noted that as well. I thought we saw him more in this movie than we actually did. So the movie runs about, what, an hour and, and 20 minutes, maybe? Maybe, let's see here. Hello, IMDb. <laughs> oh, an hour and nine minutes. So he misses almost the first half of the film. Yeah, yeah. It, you're definitely, I thought as well, that he was in the film a lot more than he actually was. Um, that's a good point. So I don't know. The, this stuff stuck out to me this time. And here, here's the other thing. So it's very heavy on story, and I love the story. I mean, that's really cool that they first disposed of him in World War One, and then in World War Two during the London Blitz is when he gets, you know, his coffin becomes open, and, oh, let's pull the stake out of this poor man, you know. And he comes back. That's really cool. And... You don't really... It's a good mystery. You don't know for a while what's going on. But to me, it's sort of like Marvel and DC Comics, you know, where DC, they say, always has the best characters, but Marvel has the stories. This is like a Marvel movie. It's got a really good story, but the characters are are not as good. I think it's interesting. If you take a look at... The, the screenplay was by Griffin J., if you look at some of the other movies he did... A lot of Universal. He did a lot of... You know, he did The Mummy's Hand. He did The Mummy's Tomb. He did Captive Wild Woman. did The Mummy's Ghost. Cry of the Werewolf, which I remember... Uh, have you seen that from I, No, I'm not familiar with that at all. I, I have that, and I remember being kind of underwhelmed by it a little. It's an interesting take. It's a little different, but it doesn't get talked about a lot. The Mask of Dijon... If that, again, that's the way you pronounce it, 1946. I saw that maybe 15 years ago, and it was okay. You know, it, 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 it was one of those things where I, I didn't hate it, but I haven't seen it, and I don't even have it in my collection. So I think that kind of speaks volumes there. Devil Bat's Daughter, which I think I've seen once, and it's that's not a sequel to Devil Bat, even though they marketed it as such. So, I mean, he, he certainly had a little bit of cred, but I, I would agree with you. There was a, there was a, a lot of story in this, which is good. It would have been nice to see maybe a little more of of Lugosi. And I don't know if that was intentional because Lugosi hadn't been a, a main actor in a, in a in a mainstream Hollywood. This is Columbia Pictures, so they didn't make you know the poverty row flicks like Lugosi had been in. They made big productions. So well, that's the other thing, though. It doesn't look. Uh, to me, it's not a lush-looking, very atmospheric production. But it's much better than what he was doing in his other films. If well, you, if true. You think about true. So, even though it's not, I don't think it's an A-list film. It's still Columbia Pictures, though, and compared to where he was working in and other films at that point, this was a, a huge leap back for him. Again, working for a major studio in a starring role, it was a huge opportunity for him that unfortunately nothing really came of it in regards to resurrecting his career unfortunately because 
I mean, he was doing Poverty Row Flicks again right after this and, and doing supporting roles, you know, in, uh, within the year. So I, I, can't, I can kind of see how, you know, nothing came from this, how it didn't revitalize his career. I like it. I mean, like I said, you know, compared to the other films he's doing around this time, the movie has a glossier look, obviously, and I think that's what makes it a better film because a lot of his Poverty Row Flicks, while they're fun... You're dealing with cheaper sets, uh, pretty basic scripts, some rough acting here or there, a lesser quality. This, you know, you had that glossier and, and the more storyline. I mean, again, a lot of those poverty row flicks, they, the story is not their, their, their strong suit. You know, mad scientist kidnaps woman and is, is going to do this and somebody's going to come in and and someone's getting married by the end of the movie, and you know it's that that repetitive formula, which is fun. But I felt like this was was an opportunity for him to do something bigger. But we never quite got that. And and maybe you're right. Maybe maybe I'm looking at it through some glossier eyes. I've always liked this one. And maybe it's because I didn't see this until much later. I had seen most of his poverty row flicks from this time period before I saw Return of the Vampire. I bought my copy at a grocery store of all places. I was just, I was checking out, I'm like, and it was there, and right, you know, and the checkout line is like, Return of the Vampire? I, I had to buy it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how often do you see that happen? And, it's like, and I was like, well, I don't even have this movie. I had never seen it before either. I had heard about it, never had it. So I have kind of a, a special affection for this movie because I think I saw it so late and then it's like oh this is so much better than some of the other films that I had seen and so I, I like it just because of that yeah and it has a great reputation a lot of people love it they love the fact that you know Lady Jane Ainsley is a female vampire hunter you know a female Van Helsing you know I'm probably being extra harsh on it but it just and you're comparing it to Poverty Row which I agree this is head you know way above that but I'm also then comparing it to Universal which its look and its feel is lesser than Universal. I wonder if this movie would have been marketed as a Dracula film, if, if what would have happened? Because clearly Universal didn't have, they didn't have the rights to right. to the Dracula. I mean, they, they threatened, but they really didn't have any, any claim on it. I wonder, you know, if Columbia would have released this as like Return of Dracula, what would have been done differently? Probably nothing. You know, other than Lugosi playing Count Dracula again. And maybe the the children or the grandchildren would be descendants of Van Helsing. Maybe. And, you know, would that, would that change the movie? I mean, maybe a little, but not much. I mean, yeah. it would, you, you would, it might have gotten maybe a bit more love over the years because people would watch Dracula and then watch Return of Dracula. It did kind of slip into obscurity for a while. You know, I think it's gotten a lot of love in the last 20 years or so since it's come out on home home video. And I know that there are, you know, books written on it. And, and was it Frank Delestrito did a presentation on it at last year's Monster Bash. So, I mean, there's a lot of love for it. And I just wonder if you throw in that Return of Dracula name, if, if it never would have slipped out of the public eye, if it would have stayed the course and... Would that have helped or would that have hurt the movie? We know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Interesting that uh, you mentioned the screenwriter, but it's also credited being based on an idea by Kurt Newman. And he is the, the person that did The Fly that we talked about yeah. a couple episodes ago and Rocket Ship XM. 
Well, you've got you know you've got an interesting cast. I mean, besides Lugosi, Frida Innescourt plays Lady Jane Ashley. She's got some genre films. The Alligator People with uh, Lon Chaney Jr. She's in She Creature, which has what the uh, Blaisdell uh, special effects. She's in a Tarzan movie, Tarzan podcast this week, I guess. <laughs> Tarzan finds his son. Now the uh, actress, I'm going to butcher the name, folks. Was it Nina? Be careful, <laughs> Nina Fauché. I don't know. <laughs> F-O-C-H. I'm sure I've heard the name pronounced, and I again, I'm horrible at names. So she plays Nikki Sanders. She didn't do a lot of genre work, but she did do some television work that slipped into the genre. She did some early anthology television shows on the Lights Out and Tales of Tomorrow, which I thought was interesting. Now, I couldn't find anything on Roland Varno, who played John Ainsley. Uh, I don't know if you nope. find anything out on him. Uh, I did think it was interesting that Matt Willis, who plays the werewolf Andreas, had an uncredited role in Invisible Agent. Yep. So, you know, these few horror genre-related films. I think we got to mention that I believe this is the first time that we see a werewolf and a vampire in a film together. That's what I was going to say after I was done dogging it, was that I really like the fact that this movie has a werewolf. And I guess he's some version of a werewolf. I mean, he doesn't really... Yeah. change back and forth when the moon is full or anything <clears throat> and he's fully clothed so yeah and, a, and he's intelligent when he's the true, werewolf i true. mean he he is able to speak he's able to function so he's not a lon cheney version or really any other normal version we've seen of a werewolf so i like uh, the way he looks he he reminds me of the 70s movie the boy who cried werewolf yes so. i thought the same thing yeah, yeah. So I, I like him yeah. And, and poor guy, too. I mean, when the time jump, you know, he thinks he's escaped the the curse. And when Tesla gets killed, you know, he returns to human form. But he gets sucked back in. I do like how it incorporated the, the bombing to resurrect him. You know, you had the comedic relief of the two guys in the graveyard. And, oh, let's pull the stake out. Like, Come on, people. Do you not watch any <laughs> movies? Do you not read anything? Don't do that. Uh, if I found an open grave and there was a stake in somebody's heart, I would not go ahead and pull that stake out. But that's just me. I've seen enough movies to know it's not going to end well. I did like that they kind of tied into that a little bit. I didn't like how there were two bombings. You know, that... that uh, and, yeah. and I mean, it makes sense. It's the same time and, you know, the Blitz was still going on. Convenient. Yes, yes. Convenient, Yeah. Well, you know, we have the, the bombings at the end of the film. I guess jumping ahead a little bit here, but spoiler alert, the death of, of Armin Tesla was pretty graphic for 1943, I felt, because we hadn't really seen that in a vampire before. I mean, I'm trying to think of, you know, I mean, uh, we, we've had Dracula, we had Dracula's daughter, son of Dracula. I don't recall that we'd ever seen... And it was different. I mean, he didn't totally disintegrate. He just sort of melted, and then he remained in that state. Well, you know, and and I guess it kind of harkened a little bit to what they would do with Christopher Lee years later. But I mean, Lee would disintegrate. But there was that more graphic end to Christopher Lee's Dracula and what horror of Dracula that's been restored in recent years because it was one of the Japanese... Laser disc version or something, and now they've tried to restore that. Right. I thought that was unique. I thought that was something different. It helps maybe the movie stand out a little bit. I don't know. I like this one. I guess, it, yeah. you know, 
we don't use that term guilty pleasure, so but I guess this is one of those films. Oh, where I don't think you should. No. I, I, I enjoy it probably because my memories about that movie, you know, and, and how I found it and when I watched it. Because I remember when I saw this, I had I had acquired a lot of the Alpha Video uh, DVD releases. I was buying those up like crazy. They're all fun, but some of them rougher than others. They're all of of lesser quality. It's fun to see Lugosi in those films, but it gets a little sad because you just think Karloff just kept making big budget films, and not big budget, I guess, but better quality films. And, you know, Karloff just kind of maintained that status where you know, Lugosi, he just didn't. And a lot of his films are very repetitive in, in their overall. I mean, it's just kind of like. Okay, we're going to take the same script. We're going to change the name, and we're going to give him some name that you know ends with an off, you know, or you know Varnoff or whatever. And uh, we're going to give him an assistant, and you know he's he's going to be a mad scientist. And he's going to have this crazy plot which has no basis in in science whatsoever. And we'll throw in a female, and we'll throw in a male, and they'll fall in love, and and they'll be married by the end of the movie and he'll be defeated and then we'll dust off the script in two weeks when we make the next movie. Uh, so to see him in, in Return of the Vampire, I thought it was it was fun because of that time period and what I was had been seeing so much of Lugosi, it was refreshing. To yeah, and don't get me wrong, I enjoy it, I do. It's just, I think, in my opinion, it's become a little overrated, perhaps, uh, but that's just my opinion. There's a couple other things I just wanted to mention about it. The tiniest, cleanest little vampire bites I've ever seen, yes. I think, in a horror movie. I mean, they're barely visible, these little pinpricks. I thought that was kind of cute. Uh, and I thought it was interesting that the pinpricks got smaller than one that was on the little girls. Like, well, that's kind of interesting. How do you get his teeth smaller? But You have anything else to say about it? Um, you know, I other than I enjoyed it, uh, it is easy to find. Uh, and it's actually, it's interesting. You can get it on DVD by itself. For $10, or you can get it as part of a four-movie box set, which is the oddest box set that I've ever seen, because it is paired with Revenge of Frankenstein, the Hammer film, with, you know, Peter Cushing, the William Castle film Mr. Sardonicus, and the, I believe, 1971 flick Brotherhood of Satan. If that's not a more bizarre, you know, box set i really don't know um who, who puts that out I, I i don't know is it mill creek maybe hmm. I, I don't know i'd have to look i saw i've seen that set before that i saw it when i was looking on amazon um i don't know and i think that set is like 20 dollars. i guess if you don't have those other movies <clears throat> it's not bad for the price but other than that not bad for ten dollars there's i don't i think you get a trailer maybe and that's about it you don't get anything extra on it which is unfortunate it'd been nice to see a little something on it but yeah, I think it's a fun film, and and it's uh, again for the time period. Unfortunately, things would would certainly be on the downhill swing for Lugosi after this. Let's listen to what Steve, our friend, has to say about the Return of the Vampire. Hi, Rich. Hi, Jeff. How you guys doing again? This is Steve Turkholm with feedback for Return of the Vampire. Uh, I love this movie. Uh, the werewolf, the vampire, a vampire huntress. I mean, it's excellent. I mean, Bella Lugosi does, again, a, a wonderful job of playing a vampire. I guess who would have figured that out? I mean, no typecasting there at all. And um, Andreas playing the um, tormented soul who becomes a werewolf 
so interesting when he does become the werewolf. I, I find it funny that his werewolf was able to speak perfectly well and um, carry out tasks like any normal person. So it, it's kind of an interesting werewolf in that way. And, of course, Lady Jane Ansley, the vampire huntress, um, who, weirdly enough, does not get to kill the vampire in the end. I thought that was kind of um Interesting how they didn't have her do it. She did all the legwork, but they didn't let her finish it off. So I really enjoyed the movie. Um, it was it was really good. I'm glad you guys have been doing this Bella Lugosi retrospective for this month, and um, I'm happy with it. Uh, to answer Sir Frederick's question that he asked at the end of the film, um, when he asks his fellow officers, you two fellows don't believe in vampires, do you? And they nod yes, and he goes to you people. I always remember my quote, my favorite quote from Cave of the Living Dead, when Joe says, you don't believe in vampires, but I do. And that, Sir Frederick, is my answer to you. And I give this 9 out of 10 disbelieving Sir Fredericks, even though all the evidence is right there in front of him. All right, give you a call back later with the next movie. Bye. Thank you, Steve, for your thoughts on that as you're kind of, you've done your homework. You're following along and, and playing the game. That's what we always like to let everyone know what we're doing ahead of time so that they can do exactly what you're doing. See these movies, and if you have thoughts, call in. At the very least, you've seen these movies ahead of time, and as we talk about it, you're familiar with some of the things. There's no spoilers. You, you We're assuming everyone's done their homework, and if you haven't, shame on you. And it's good to hear what someone else thinks. Absolutely. Uh, I... So 1944, at this point, Lugosi's career is beginning to take a little bit of a turn. Return of the Vampire is not the big return to form for him. Uh, he goes right back to Poverty Row for his next films. In 1944, Voodoo Man, Return of the Ape Man. He has a, uh, a small role in a film called One Body Too Many. And then in 1945... He's in the Val Luton production, The Body Snatcher. He's paired up with Boris Karloff one last time, but it's really not a Karloff-Lugosi film. Lugosi has essentially got one scene with Karloff, and it's so sad because Karloff is a very demanding presence in this film, and Lugosi just comes across so sad on screen in this movie. I love the movie. Body Snatcher is a lot of fun, but it's, it's tough to see... Lugosi alongside Karloff in it. Do you, do you agree on that? Or? Yeah, and that, but if I recall, the scene they have is a terrific scene. It's a terrific, it's really it good. It is. It's a great scene. It's just when you when you realize that just in nineteen, you know what? What I guess not even eleven years earlier they were they were equals, and now Karloff is still carrying off the lead role in films, and Lugosi is you know lucky to get this part that he's got. His health was declining by this point. The uh, addiction was becoming a bit more prevalent. Um, you're, you're seeing the quality of his films decrease. He does a 1945 film called Zombies on Broadway, which is, it's got some politically incorrect scenes in it. That movie's got a blackface routine, which kind of comes out of nowhere. It's a rough film, but there's some fun moments in it. But again, Lugosi, even then, in that movie, he's playing second fiddle to the comedic uh, elements in that movie. A movie called Genius at Work, which I really don't even remember this movie. It's hard to find. It's with Wally Brown and Alan Carney, kind of Abbott and Costello wannabes. And again, Lugosi's, yeah, I think he's billed 
fifth in the film. He's billed behind Ann Jeffries and Lionel Atwill. And Atwill's star was, was decreasing with this point as well. Scared to Death in 47 is probably one of his more well-known Poverty Row flicks, but that doesn't really mean it's good. That's a rough film, in my opinion, anyway. Then in 1948, there's there's this shining moment, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. It is a film that's, that revives the Abbott and Costello series. It ends the Universal Monster Film series. It pays respect to them. And Lugosi wasn't even going to be part of it. The cast really had to go to bat for Lugosi to, to be able to officially reprise his role of Dracula for the first time in 17 years. Uh, it's a great film. Lugosi, I think, does an amazing job in that. There's really no evidence in this film. He looks better in this film than he does in some of the other films. And I think maybe it was just he was happy to be back at Universal and be in such a, uh, such a good film. But again, it's fleeting. He has some television appearances after this. Uh, he makes his television debut in the Milton Berle Show in 1949, but he becomes very confused because Milton Berle does a lot of ad-libbing. Lugosi had remembered the script, and unfortunately, Milton Berle went off script, so it confused him. He's taking stage roles in small productions. He's doing spook shows in, in small towns. He does another television uh, appearance, uh, in fact, it's his only t- television appearance in a scripted role. It's an episode of Suspense, which was brought to television. It's based on the popular radio show. But it's in an adaptation of the classic Edgar Allan Poe story, A Cask of Amontillado. And it actually still exists. It's not bad, actually. He, he does a good job for what is really his only television appearance. He heads over to the uh, to the UK. He's doing some stage work over there. He's really surviving on public appearances. He's uh, not making as much money. He's living in obscurity. He's really living in, in poverty almost by this point. He, he does a few really bad films in 1952. Uh, one is called Vampire Over London or Old Mother Riley Meets a Vampire, uh, which is a basically a guy in drag over in the UK playing Mother Riley. Uh, he plays a vampire. It is what it is better than the next film he did, which was Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla featuring a couple of guys who are Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis wannabes, uh, to the point that the actor who's playing the Jerry Lewis ripoff actually got a cease and desist order from Jerry Lewis at one point. And the guy playing the, the Dean Martin part basically couldn't sing his way out of a paper sack. It's really, really bad. By 1953, he meets Ed Wood Jr., and some will say that's good, some will say that's bad, depending on how you look at it. He plays the part of the scientist in the movie Glenn or Glenda, which is, again, it is what it is. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's, it's a rough film. Kind of cutting edge, I guess, a little bit for the time period, but sad to see Lugosi in that type of film, but it was the only work he was getting at that point. A lot of people say that Edward Jr., would take advantage of Lugosi's condition at that point. Bella Lugosi's son certainly feels that way, but others are saying Edward had nothing but affection for Bella and was giving him work and was putting money in his pocket. And he was Lugosi was helping him by putting his, a name on his films, 
and you know I think it was a mutual friendship. I don't think I don't think that there was any uh, any intent by Edward to use Lugosi. I think there was legitimate friendship there. Edward's a very bizarre character, but I don't think he ever tried to to capitalize on Lugosi. At least that's my impression. His son seems to feel differently. But again, it was work, and he wasn't getting a lot of that. We get to 1955 in the next film, Bride of the Monster, where he plays Dr. Eric Vornoff. He is clearly not in good health. Addiction is is really robbing him of his ability to accurately remember lines. Uh, he's He's looking a lot older than he really is by this point. And he is, is heavily addicted to, to morphine. But again, work is, is, is just isn't happening. And along comes this film. And interestingly enough, Bride of the Monster really is the last movie in which Lugosi would get top billing and would have a lead role. It's also the last time he would have a speaking role in the film. This 1955 movie made at the end of his career, Bela Lugosi plays Dr. Eric Vornoff, a mad scientist determined to create a race of atomic supermen that will conquer the world. With the help of his hulking henchman, Lobo, he kidnaps a beautiful young woman. However, his experiments backfire, and Vornoff learns the ultimate lesson for tampering in God's domain. So, if I'm doing my math right, you say he's older looks older than he is, but he was 76, wasn't he? Well, he was 73 oh. at the time of his death, so I guess... Oh. <laughs> I guess... I know, I guess, so I guess, you know, he was, what, 70... 71, 72 at the time of production. I guess maybe he just doesn't look well. I mean, but... To me, though, he moves better than he did in Return of the Vampire. I think maybe it's the drugs. Maybe he's sort of loopy but he's well I mean very he got, animated when he you know whips toward Johnson I mean he's he does look better in this film than he does in say Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla which I didn't think he looked very well in that movie at all 
I guess you are right. I mean, considering his age, he's still getting around rather well. And some would argue maybe even getting around better than Karloff did at that point because Karloff also suffering from back problems to the point where it was almost very debilitating Karloff's abilities uh, in the last, you know, 10 years of his life, maybe five or six years. You know, but I think the biggest thing is Lugosi, you know, when you see those close-ups, he was looking haggard. He was looking under under the influence of an addiction. And if you look at, say, say Karloff from that same time period, or same age, Karloff always, he, I guess, aged gracefully. Lugosi wasn't aging gracefully. And that was the addiction. That wasn't really his fault. Uh, it was just kind of the nature of the beast. He had suffered back problems. And the only way he could continue to function was the medication. And unfortunately, by becoming addicted to it, it really set him on a path where, you know, these are the only types of movies he could get. That said, Bride of the Monster, it's a starring role for him. It's something he hadn't had for for several years. In fact, most of of the, the films that he had prior to this were supporting roles. I mean, the last time he would have been in a legitimate starring role would have been Return of the Vampire. Well, no, I take that back. He would have been the starring role in Return of the Ape Man in 1944. Every movie after that, though, he was a supporting character. Or he was sharing top billing. So it had been a few years since he had the that top billing. And even though it's in a... Not, not even a B-grade production, uh, a Z-grade production like Bride of the Monster... It had to be a big ego boost for him, kind of a last gasp of glory as he was able to play that lead, and, and he gave it his all in this yeah, movie. Yeah, I, I think the role suits him, and it looks like he's having fun. Now, you've got me questioning now, because I'm thinking he's more agile, and he's more animated, and, you know, is he just under a drug fog or something? Well, I mean, because I mean, he he, he'll do this big, goofy smile, and it suits the character. I mean, he's a mad scientist, yeah. you know, he's crazy. You know, how much, I guess, of that was under his control? Well, so here's the the story I alluded to earlier. There's a scene where his his character, Dr. Vornoff, kind of has a, whatever you want to call it, a moment where he just kind of goes on and on and on about his plans and about being uh, the bride of the Atom, which was the original title of the film. But uh, the studio really wanted to downplay the whole atomic bomb uh, element. I guess that was something they didn't really want to, to focus on. Ed Wood didn't have the confidence that Lugosi would be able to make it through the scene and wanted to have cue cards. Lugosi was adamant that he would not use the cue cards for this scene. And Ed Wood said, you know, Bela, we got to do this. And, you know, Bella agreed, but then talked to one of the production assistants who was supposed to have the cue cards and told him, don't show me the cue cards. And he didn't. He put them down by his side. He had them ready if Lugosi faltered, but he didn't. Lugosi made it through the entire scene without skipping a beat, without miss- missing a word. And when... Edward said cut. Apparently, as as legend has it, everyone gave him a standing ovation. Many claim that it was his last big hurrah in a film because it was a a big moment for him and he proved that he could still do it despite the fact that, you know, he was clearly in the the grasp of, of heavy addiction at that point. As anyone who knows enough about addictions, there's good days and bad days. Clearly, it was a good day for him. He was clearly 
in the zone and was able to do that scene. He does look haggard in the film, and it's a it's a uh, definitely a low grade production. But he is he's in his zone though when he's doing this movie, and and he is approaching it like it is a universal film from 1934. He gives it his all, and he looks better in this movie than he does in other films that he did in the previous five, six, seven years. And I don't think it's a bad movie. I mean, I enjoy it. It's not uh, it's, bad. It's, it's silly it's... as can be. I mean, everything about it, the, this octopus that, you know, he can see out his window, and so I think, oh, he's got a big tank in there, you know, that he's holding. But no, it goes out not to the lake or the ocean you know i think it's a swamp uh, i don't know how it gets back and forth and it just kind of is propped up in a corner in the swamp which again legend has it right this this was stolen from the set of wake of the red witch the john wayne film from 1948 and that when they stole the octopus they didn't steal the motor to make it run and so you know it's it was just basically propped up and what you see the other scenes, it's it's stock footage of an octopus. I don't know though. I mean, it, it even though you have some cheesy moments when clearly the octopus isn't moving and they're picking up the arms and throwing it over, it's got a charm about it. I think, and and I feel like you know Ed Wood, like he's got a reputation. He doesn't do great films. This movie though is leaps and bounds better than Plan Nine from Outer Space. Plan 9 is is its own individual category in, in, <laughs> in, in film. This movie, it was actually uh, the only Ed Wood film that was a financial success, which I guess says something that partly you got to say that was Lugosi's name being attached to it in a starring role helped make the film a success. I mean, clearly he didn't spend a lot of money on the movie, but for it to be the only one that he made you know, money off of, that speaks volumes. And the, the script is decent. I mean, it's got some layers to it when uh, Professor Strotsky comes in and it's sort of a surprise there who he really ends up being, or at least I was. I didn't really anticipate that. And then that kind of gives purpose to, to Lugosi and what his character's doing. I mean, I I think this is very decent. I agree. Um, you know, Alex Gordon co-wrote the film with Edward Jr. and he was involved in Edward's other film, Jailbait. But he did produce some other films in the horror genre. She Creature, again, we mentioned that film. Uh, Voodoo Woman, 1960s film, The Underwater City, which I think I saw many, many, many years ago. So he had some, some horror cred there. You know, most of the cast, really, I mean, they didn't do a lot, right? Edward, you know, his his cast of characters were were basically a cast of unknown, with the exception of Lobo played by Tor Johnson. Tor Johnson, I was surprised when I went to go see, you know, how many films Tor Johnson did. I knew that I had seen some of his other films. I was surprised at how far back his filmography went because he was doing movies back in the in the 1930s, I believe, mm. usually playing strongman types. Uh, I think his his first film, 1934, Registered Nurse he plays Sonovich the Terrible Bulgarian. <laughs> Did he have hair back then, or was he always bald? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, he followed this up. You know, this, his parts are Torturer, Tough Guy, Tosoff the Wrestler, Jack the Ripper, the Mauler, you know, <laughs> uh, Weightlifter. I mean, clearly he has a look about him. 
I was surprised though at how many you know how many films he did and uh, some of the films that he did. He was in the Canterville Ghost. He was in uh, the Bob Hope Bing Crosby Road to Rio film. He played Sandor. He was in some uh, Abbott Costello in the Foreign Legion. He plays Abu Ben. I mean, Angels in the Outfield, which is a well-known film. Lady in the Iron Mask. He was in Houdini. Did some television work. He had a much more prolific career than I actually was ever aware of. Hmm. And this was, of course, not the only time he would play the character of Lobo. Uh, are you familiar with the, the, the sequel that they made to this movie? Ah, uh, I am aware of it. I don't know many details about it. Well, it was it was called Night of the Ghouls, and Tor Johnson plays the character of Lobo. It's considered a sequel because it has Lobo in it. I, I think it's one of those things where I don't think it really has anything to do with the predecessor other than Lobo, kind of the Rondo Hatton, simply because he's playing the Creeper. It's considered sequels, but there's really not much to tie it together. That was a film that Ed Wood finished in 1959, but it was never released until uh, 1987. Uh, I have a copy of it that I got off YouTube, and it looks to be a good, clear copy, but I've never seen it. Mm. I, it's a, I had, you know, it was on my radar many years ago, then it fell off, and now I'm kind of curious to see how bad is it. Some of the things I've read say it, it's comparable to Plan 9 kind of bad, so I don't think we're going to get another Bride of the Monster. You know, Tor Johnson, following Bride of the Monster continued to play in a variety of films Black Sheep, which we'll talk about in a second here. Uh, He was in a movie called The Unearthly uh, where he played Lobo 2. So I don't know, he plays a (laughs) descendant of himself. I don't know. Of course, he's in Plan 9 from Outer Space where he plays Inspector Clay, a non-Lobo-ish character. Uh, I forget that. Uh, Lots of television work. The infamous Beast of Yucca Flats from 1961 Last regular role, he played a guard in the Monkees movie Head in 1968. <laughs> kind of an interesting career for him, and, and Bride of the Monster is one of the highlights uh, of his career. And he's actually, it's interesting because he's, Lobo, you think, is this mindless beast, but yet he's able to, to function and, and work with a lot of the, the switches and stuff. I mean... Vornoff tells him to do this, and he knows where to go and what to do. I suppose you could say he was trained to do it, but I think he's a lot more intelligent than than, than we give him credit for. An odd character, but interesting that, that he could kind of play that in multiple movies. And it turns out he has a conscience as well. Apparently, yes, yes. The one actor that played Captain Robbins, Harvey B. Dunn, Looked familiar to me. He has, I think, the most credits of any actor in this film, 44 credits. There were a couple other genre films. Did you recognize him for anything, or does he just have one of those familiar faces? Uh, I didn't recognize him, so I mean, I, maybe I hadn't seen him in anything. I mean, I, I'm glancing right now to see what other films he, he did to see if maybe... I thought he was in 44 films or 44 appearances. Uh, he was... Uh, in My Fair Lady in 1964, that's interesting. An ascot extra. I don't even know what that, what that is. Apparently he was wearing an ascot. Uh, let's see. Night of the Ghouls, he played Henry. Oh, Teenagers from Outer Space. He played Gramps Morgan. Actually, I just saw that eclipse of that movie not too long ago. Yeah. The Remarkable Mr. Pennypacker. Okay. Yeah, I guess he was in one of the, the Ma and Pa Kettle films. Uh, some television work. Nothing that's really 
screaming out at me no mm. i mean i've probably seen i know that i've seen some of these movies so i've probably seen seen them appear in some of these movies but no no i didn't i didn't recognize him when i saw him and his character again it shows a level of coherence to this script that i didn't expect because while he's sending the two main guys to investigate the monster that's killing people he goes and pursues his own investigation for the girl that's missing so that could easily be a plot element that that's dropped you know to focus on one thing but there's sort of these parallel stories and Again, I didn't really expect that level of sophistication, if you will, in a movie like this. No, no, you don't. I did see, and I don't know what he, uh, how he was involved in the production. Did you see where, where because this film was a success, that it uh, Samuel Arkoff was involved in the in, in the the film, and it actually helped him start up AIP, American International mm. Pictures. I'm I'm looking now to see if he was like a a producer or where he was how he was involved in this and I I I'm drawing a blank. Huh, so I don't know. I, I don't know if it, how he would have been involved. He's not listed as producer. You mentioned the atomic part of it, how they wanted to play that down. I was sort of surprised that it had such a part in the movie. I mean, it, it it's prob- probably one of the silly parts, but it is woven throughout. I mean, even they make mention of the weather that they're having. There's a lot of, wa- of rain in the swamp. Well, maybe it's all those atom bomb explosions are changing the atmosphere. <laughs> uh, there's some science for Carlo there. And then, you know, his whole race of supermen he wants to create their atomic supermen and he calls her bright adam i guess we're to assume he's using some type of atomic power to to create uh, although you don't really see that in his equipment or anything like that but then the, the thing that gets me is so funny at the end when he's destroyed there's like a mushroom cloud yeah and I, they're standing like right by it watching it so I, I don't know if it was just a tiny little mushroom cloud and it looked pretty big to it, me yeah. I, yeah, it's, it's that big atomic explosion which I guess is supposed to be nuclear explosion or whatever yeah it was like that just seemed let's just Again, that's I think that was an Edwardism, right? Let, let's just tack this this public domain footage, whoosh, and we're going to make a big explosion at the end of this film. We don't care that it makes any sense. We're just going to do it. Yeah. I, you know, I enjoyed it. It's it's part of several box sets. It's easy to find. You can get it for less than fifteen dollars. It's out there. I think that as you're working your way through Lugosi films, you can either do it chronologically or or, you know, you can kind of pick and choose, and, and I think that this is probably going to be, in my mind, I think that it's better than some of his other films that he did in the previous 10, 15 years. I can certainly say it's better than Shadows of Chinatown. You know, I think that it, it, it stands on its own, and I think, you know, Lugosi, some of the films, of course, where he plays a supporting role, you kind of watch it just because you're a completist. You're trying to see all of his roles, and it's kind of sad to see Lugosi as a butler who pops up in random scenes, and you see something like this, and you're like, no. Even though he looks haggard, even though it's at the end of his career, it's it's still... Is it better than Karloff's uh, four films for Mexico? Absolutely, it's better than those four films. Is it going to be you know one of the top five films Lugosi did? No, it's not, but it's better than a lot of the other... Uh, lesser quality films that he did. 
Yep, I agree. Anything else to say before we hear what Mr. Turek thought of it? Uh, no, I don't. Let's hear what he has to say. Okay. Hello, gentlemen. It's Steve Turk once again to get feedback on Bride of the Monster, uh, the Ed Wood classic, my favorite Ed Wood movie of all the Ed Wood movies. Uh, whether it's controversial or not, hey, it's my feelings about it. Um, I love it that Ed Wood, you at least got Bella Lugosi a few more movies in before he passed away or even after he passed away. And with Bride of the Monster, it was, if I understand, his last speaking role. And he did the most of what he was given. I mean, it was, it's, it's, it's not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination. But Bella Lugosi, Tor Johnson, I mean, they did their, their best to make it a fun, entertaining thing, especially Bella Lugosi. The monster, I mean, you got the stock footage of an octopus, and of course you got everybody pulling from the, the tentacles around them when they're going against the fake or the prop monster. And it's just, it's just an enjoyable watch. But if you don't have Bella Lugosi and Tor Johnson, I'll have to say this movie would be a four out of ten octopi. But with Tor Johnson, it goes to five out of ten. And with Bella Lugosi, it goes to um, a six and a half out of ten octopi scale. All right. Um, I hope you guys are having a great month. I'm looking forward to hearing this next episode. You know, Bella goes to get your guys' feedback and your retrospectives and the different parts of the history thing. And I'm looking forward to see what you guys got coming up next month. All right. This is Steve Turk signing off. Hope you guys have a great day. Bye. Thank you, Steve. As always, appreciate your engagement with the show and your participation that it it really adds something so we appreciate that so rich what happened to bella in his few years after bride of the monster well um so just prior to bride of the monster i should mention that he had divorced his wife lillian arch after 20 years of marriage not sure the reasons why i can't remember i think they did mention it in the documentary i think it was just a combination of his declining health declining wealth i think it was just the marriage was was at its end she still played she she i think that they were on good terms right some of his other marriages things weren't you know there was still because she would have an involvement in in some decisions made after he died so you know i, I got the hint that there was it wasn't the uh the animosity between uh he and, and lillian like there were some of his earlier wives of course, during the, the post-production of Bride of the Monster, Bella enters rehab for his drug addiction. That is something that uh, Ed Wood initially helped in. Word kind of got out. Rumor has it Frank Sinatra even helped pay for part of it uh, because he loved Lugosi's films. On his release in 1955, there's an infamous footage of him being interviewed, like literally right outside the uh, sanitarium. And uh, Lugosi looks good in that, actually. I think he... He looked very well. Again, very skinny. But again, I mean, he's in his 70s. So, you know, he, you, you kind of brought that to attention. He's actually looking good, for I guess, for a man of his age. And he looks a lot better than there, there than he did in some of his previous uh, years and some of the films that he did. He is claiming that he is going to be starring in a new Edward film called The Ghoul Goes West. It's a movie that never does get made. He would film some test footage. Uh, Edward would film some Lugosi footage, and that would be used later on. But he did have one film, one more film prior to his death, and that was The Black Sleep. 
It's an interesting film released in 1955. I actually kind of like it. It's got Basil Rathbone, who as well was looking a little haggard in that point. He too had gone from being an A-list star to clearly slumming in some of these lesser films. Tor Johnson is in this. Uh, Lon Chaney Jr. is in this as well, I believe. Sadly, Lugosi doesn't have any lines. He wanted to speak, but the part you know that he had was, was a non-speaking role, and uh, he took it. Lugosi looks very small and frail in that movie. You know, clearly he's come out of the addiction, but it has taken a tremendous toll on his body. He doesn't look very healthy in it. The movie, again, is not a bad movie, but it is sad to see that that really is Lugosi's last film. He would die of a heart attack on August 16, 1956, at the age of 73. He was buried in his Dracula cave. This was at the request of his son and his now fifth wife, Hope Leninger, Leninger uh, who he married in 1955. So really like in the last year uh, he married, and I don't recall the details behind that marriage, but obviously he was only married to her for a year. Lillian was, was I think, I believe, I, I've heard varying stories that she was also involved in the funeral. So again, that's where I kind of get that there was, uh, obviously I think there was some bitter feelings because the marriage ended, but there was still something there between the two of them, despite the fact that he had uh, remarried for a fifth time. Post Lugosi's death, there is one more film released, and we've talked about it, Plan 9 from Outer Space, Ed Wood takes the footage that he filmed of Lugosi for The Ghoul Goes West and incorporates it into Plan 9 from Outer Space, which gets released in 1959. Uh, Lugosi doesn't speak. It was just test footage, but it's thrown in there so Lugosi's name can be added to the film. I believe that may be where Bell Lugosi Jr. feels that Ed Wood may be capitalized on Lugosi. And I, I would say that he... I, I don't think that he did prior to that. I think... Putting Lugosi's name on that film was trying to capitalize on Lugosi because clearly he's in it for just a matter of, of moments. and But his character pops up more than that one scene with Lugosi or a couple scenes of Lugosi and it's somebody playing the same character. It's, what is it, Edward's dentist, I believe, uh, who was clearly not the same size or build of Lugosi, and he puts the cape over his face, and only his eyes show, so you never see that it's actually not Lugosi, but you can tell, obviously, that it isn't because the <laughs> eyes don't match up. That just goes with what a really bad film Plan 9 is. As fun as it can be, it, it is pretty bad. And that is officially the, the last film of Lugosi. Although in recent years... I've seen that, like even IMDb, they don't count that film as as a official film. They list it under archival footage, uh, which I think is probably more accurate because really, Lugosi didn't film anything for that movie. He filmed it for something that didn't get made, and and Ed would just kind of use that footage to throw in there to throw his name into it. Um, and that is is the a rather unfortunate end to Lugosi's career. I think Bride of Monster would have been a better end if he could have ended there rather than with Black Sleep or Plan 9. So we never mentioned it. I guess I have to ask if we don't like it. I'll edit it out. The movie, Ed Wood, Johnny Depp. How do we feel about Lugosi's portrayal? Martin Landau won an Academy Award for it. It's been a long time since I've seen it. I don't really yeah. know that I can judge, but as we talked about some of these things, I re it's natural I recall scenes from that movie. Um, you know, I love Martin Landau, and I think that he did 
he did good. Obviously, I, I think it was worthy of, of the recognition that it got. I think clearly it was glamorized, if you want to call it. Uh, I think that some of what he portrays in that movie is is clearly not what really did happen. You know, the, the certainly you know uh, Bela Lugosi's son uh, is not very fond of of Ed Wood. You know, both the movie and the person, and so uh, he feels like I think I think like I mean. If I remember correctly, I think he's he acknowledges Martin Landau's portrayal, but at the same time says they got a lot wrong in it. Belagosi Jr. is very protective of uh, his father and the legacy. Uh, I mean, it, it led to a court battle, uh, Lugosi versus Universal Pictures, where the family tried to essentially acquire the rights of, of their father or of Bela Lugosi back from Universal Studios, which played a part in why Universal Studios will only sparingly use Lugosi's image when promoting the Universal monsters. If it's a if it's Dracula, they'll they'll use that image, right? If it's a DVD or a Blu-ray. But like when they were doing the Universal montage for the Mummy, the ill-fated Tom Cruise film, they didn't use Lugosi. In that they they used the uh, the Spanish actor Carlos Villares, I believe, from the the Spanish production of, of Dracula. So even now, Universal uses Lugosi very sparingly, and a lot of times I think when you see some product that where they're promoting their monsters, a lot of times Dracula doesn't look like Lugosi. They they choose to to I and I'm sure it's a rights thing. I mean they've got to pay so much money to the Lugosi family. And I know that there's this, you know, clearly Universal, I think, tries to do it sparingly. So they pay only the limited amount of money to the Lugosi family. But it, it did lead to the creation of the California Celebrities Rights Act. And so there is there is a bit more protection for the uh, the rights. Around that time period, though, a lot of um, things were happening legally in Hollywood. A lot of actors were, were trying to get... Essentially, you know, they were trying to get their fair share of the studios using their images and not paying them. I know the Happy Days cast, many of them had to go to to court. The the actors who played Patsy and Ralph and, and uh, Aaron Moran who played Joni, I mean, they had to go to court because the studios were using their, their images on a wide variety of products, but they weren't getting paid anything. Ron Howard would, uh, Henry Winkler would. But the others wouldn't. At the same time, too, a lot of the uh, supporting cast for classic Star Trek, James Doohan, George Takei, Walter Koenig, Nichelle Nichols, they weren't getting any residuals from Star Trek. They had to go to court and say, wait, wait a minute, you know. You know, now, of course, actors, when they sign contracts to appear in a movie or appear in a television series, everything is thought of, right? From, from uh, you know, streaming rights to, you know, Funko Pop figures. I mean, everybody's getting their fair share. But there was a time that they didn't. And this case with Legosi versus Universal Pictures was one of many cases that actually is now protecting celebrities and their their uh, their families of getting their fair share of the residuals and, and uh, anything that's that's incorporated using their past relatives. Images and Bela Lugosi Jr. was was one of he's a lawyer, uh, still with us at the age of eighty, 
Uh, he is, he's hard to believe that Lugosi's son is now 80 years old, but he was instrumental in that. Hmm. Anything to, to wrap this up? I had a lot of fun. I think maybe we should talk about, of the three films, what's our favorite and least favorite? I'll let you... Yeah, I, I think it... I know we said that at the first, but I think it probably became pretty obvious, at least for me, as, as we went. But I... Of this viewing of the, the trilogy, I I liked them in the order that we talked about them. Uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue, Return of the Vampire, and Bride of the Monster. I, yeah, may, well... Uh, You'll I, probably I, flip those first. I'm going to say Return of the Vampire... Edges out murders on the room more barely. I really do like Lugosi in, in that movie, but I, I feel like Return of the Vampire for me is a little bit better. And Bride of the Monsters third. So, okay, well we agree on that one, the last <laughs> one. All right then, let's uh, take a break and uh, come back and wrap this baby up. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Working together, we saved the planet. And I believe that if we stayed together as a team, we would be a force that could truly work for the ideals of peace and justice. Every episode. My name is Jean. I'm a Martian. Every adventure. <sighs> okay, you guys are so slow. Every hero. Whatever you think you're doing, if you present a threat to the world, the Justice League will take you down. Cindy and Chris Franklin bring you... JLU cast. Whatever the future holds, we'll make those choices ourselves. Don't say you don't love me. I'll never say that. Covering the complete animated run of Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And the adventure continues. There's strength in numbers. What? Like a bunch of super friends? More like a Justice League. Welcome back. August releases on home video. Not a lot, but some interesting things. And I wonder, is there something going on with the movie Straight Jacket? Because it's coming out in a double feature with Berserk from Mill Creek on August 7th, but then as a standalone from Shout Factory on August 21st. Plus, we'll talk about later in the TV Terror Guide, it's going to be on Turner Classic Movies this month. So I, I wonder what the deal is with that anniversary anything related to Joan Crawford I don't know I, I could not find any reason for its seeming resurgence in popularity so I guess let's uh, I'll use some of my Google foo while you go on and see if yes. I can find anything well, well let me tell you what else is coming out so uh, 1980 a little bit out of our range but the changeling is coming out on August 7th from Severin uh, I saw that when it first came out, didn't care for it, but it has gotten such a fantastic reputation. I did go ahead and pre-order that. I'm going to uh, bank on my tastes having changed it's in the last... Dorsey uh, Scott. Course. Right, right. It's supposed yeah. to be a very, very scary ghost story. It, I think it's a good scary... I mean, I, George C. Scott's not a... I know a lot of people love George C. Scott. I don't think he's a great actor myself. I'm probably... You know, as Patton, of course, you know, he does great. But to me, I think... He's good, but he's not as great as some people. Maybe that's just me. Maybe, you know, he was, I guess, a little before my time. I was still young when his movies were really coming out. I mean, I remember seeing him in in uh, The Exorcist Three, and I think he does great in that. But uh, The Changeling, I love it. It's it's a great movie, but um, George C. Scott leaves a little to be desired, at least for me. Hmm. Okay, 
I have no feelings one way or the other. Uh, the Tingler is also coming out on the 21st from Shout Factory. A 1975 horror movie called Leonore is coming out from Scorpion. And then on the 28th, what we all have been clamoring for from Severin, The Horror of Party Beach is coming out on Blu-ray. I, I have to order my copy of that. I, I, I have a copy, but it's, you know it's not going to be as good as the Blu-ray. It's one of those guilty... Again, can't say guilty pleasures, but... It, that would, if you had, that would be a guilty pleasure, wouldn't it? I mean, that's yep. That's that's bad, but but good. Yep. It's your birthday. Happy birthday. Birthdays in the month of August. On the fifth, we could celebrate the 1939 birthday of Bob Clark, the director. He made Black Christmas, among other things, which we discussed in our Margot Kidder episode. August 8th of 1926, I threw this one in for you, Richard. Richard Anderson. You can tie it in here for Forbidden Planet, but I know you love you some Six Million Dollar Man. I do. I do. August 10th, to, 2002. How about 1902? Kurt Siodmak, of course, wrote Donovan's Brain that we talked about. August 13th, 1899, the great Alfred Hitchcock. August 15th, 1897, Aben Kandel. He was a writer who wrote I Was a Teenage Werewolf, which we have discussed on the show. Small World, August 20th, 1917, Loretta King, who was in Bride of the Monster. Okay. And then August 30th, 1797, Mary Shelley. Wow. Of course, the year of Frankenstein. Yes. Frankenstein. I did not find anything, by the way, on Straight Jacket or Joan Crawford. It's coincidence, I guess, but that's... That's an odd coincidence. Yeah. yeah, that's weird. It must be. Would it be in public domain? Is that why two different studios would be releasing it at the same time? I didn't think that movie was public domain, so mm. I don't know. That's that's odd. Interesting. movies that came out in August over the years uh, it was a great uh, a great uh, month because August 4th 1971 Night of Dark Shadows that classic movie that I've, we discussed last time I've heard of it what is yes yeah. yes August 15th 1968 Targets ah. Karloff we've discussed that great movie love it August 16th 1971 The Case of the Scorpion's Tale movie I recently watched on Arrow Home Video and wrote about it on the blog. It's sort of a, uh, a really, really smart giallo film that was was pretty good. August 22nd, 1956, your friend Richard Anderson again and that movie Forbidden Planet. That's when that came out. August 24th, 77, again, just Richard, I do so much for you. Kingdom of the Spiders for your William Shatner. I, I love that movie. I do too. That's it, it's, great. That's uh, yeah. It's that's so fun. I've got a lot of fond memories of revisiting that. Did that on the B movie cast with Vince many many years ago. August twenty seventh, nineteen thirty two. Doctor X came out. That featured Lionel Atwill, and we're going to talk about him here in just a minute. And then August thirtieth, nineteen seventy two. Last House on the Left. That also came out from Arrow Video recently, and I reviewed that on my blog. That is a, a rough film. I, I did not like it. 
Is that your first time watching it? No, yeah. I had seen it before, and I remember I watched it when they did the remake, because I watched both of them. Well, it was... Uh, Very in the, distasteful. In the last couple of weeks, I have watched both of the Video Nasty documentaries on Shudder. Um, I, I have a free month of Shudder, and I'm trying to get as much as I can in. Interesting documentaries. I, I highly recommend, if, if you know anything about the Video Nasties, watch those documentaries. Uh, I think the first is a little better than the second, but they talk about you know, a wide variety of films and that's mentioned. And I just remember feeling like I needed to take a, a shower after that. I, it, and it, I just didn't enjoy it. I guess I'm not into that type of film to me. That's just not my thing. I, I can see a lot of gritty contemporary things. I, I love the Saw movies for what they are. Yeah. Last House and Left to me was just, was too, uh, too gritty. Yeah. Yeah. For the TV Terror Guide, I do not have the full month of Svengoolie, uh, but if it if it continues the month as well as it starts out, it, it's going to be a great month because August fourth, Son of Frankenstein, and August eleventh, The Wolfman. Yeah, they're they're back into the Universal films now. They uh, they had some some different films back in the spring. They're in uh, their summertime repeats now, and that's some good repeats there. Yeah. On Turner Classic Movies, not a whole lot this month, but on August 3rd, uh, they're doing their Summer Under the Stars series, and that evening, it's a Friday night, the star is Lionel Atwell. So we can see Mystery of the Wax Museum, Secret of the Blue Room, Dr. X, Vampire Bat, Mark of the Vampire, and The Gorilla. Secret of the Blue Room, that's... Uh, I that, That's... Yeah, is that a first time airing? That is something I always ask you about. You know, like sometime, somehow miraculously, every time I ask, you'll have acquired it. But um, it is on their guide. It's marked as uh, not. It doesn't say a first time viewing, but it's like TCM presents or something. So it may be. I wow, I'm curious. I mean, yeah. I acquired that many years ago through you know the usual bootleg um because it's just not a film that you i don't even think oh you do have it i do have oh, secret of the huh. blue room maybe i'm yes. thinking of something else and it's i don't think it's been released I mean, unless it maybe a universal vault series maybe that's that's a rare film so mm. that's kind of cool they're playing that yeah august 14th tcm is playing congo from 1932 talk about a pre-code movie that's a doozy August 23rd, a, a movie called Brainstorm from 1965 that I have not heard of. Are you familiar with that? Um, who's in it? You know? I don't know offhand, but it's not Natalie Wood. No, it's... <laughs> That's the... I, I, I think I know that one. So, again, great podcasting here. I'm going to do some searching and see who the cast is. And while you do that, I will mention that on August 24th, another summer under the stars, Peter Lorre. Now, of course, they just had a Peter Lorre day where they played a bunch of movies. Interestingly, they're not really repeating the same movies, maybe a couple, but only a couple are really genre films. The others are some of his other movies, but uh, they're playing Face Behind the Mask from 1941, Arsenic and Old Lace, and then Island of Doomed Men from 1940. Are you familiar with that movie? Uh, I have it. I've never seen it, okay. actually. It's not a horror film. I think oh. it's a prison flick, I oh. believe. I think okay. it has to do with maybe, uh, what's that, Island? Uh, Alcatraz? 
not Alcatraz. Rikers Island? No, 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 no. <laughs> What's the island like off of France or like something that was a prison? Okay. Anyway, yeah, I think that's what it is. Okay. Uh, Brainstorm. Yes. I have seen this. This is a Jeffrey Hunter film. Oh. Played Captain Pike on Star Trek. Yes. There's a Star Trek reference. Also has Dana Andrews and Francis. It's a drama. It's a thriller. Scientist Jim Graham saves his boss's wife from suicide but falls in love with her and plots to kill her husband by pretending to be criminally insane. Hmm. Uh, that's a fun little flick, actually. Yeah, I can see that. And then, as I mentioned, Straight Jacket is on uh, TCM, and the date for that is September 1st. Comet TV is kind of wrapping down its uh, giant monster Sunday night shows. I do want to mention they're showing Amityville Horror almost every other day. <laughs> I just saw that. We, uh, of course, talked about that in our Margot Kidder episode. And then... Uh, on August 4th, and subsequent to that, I'm sure, because they repeat, uh, Baffled from 1973 with oh, Leonard wow. Nimoy. Yeah, that's uh, rarely played on television, so yeah. that's fun. Yeah. So that's it for the TV Terror Guide. What's up with you, Richard? What are you doing on your blog, podcasting? Well, the Sci-Fi Horror Fest uh, is continuing uh, without stoppage. So, I, Congratulations. I, you I have know. not missed a day. Uh, so we're going to keep up. We've got fun month coming up. I'm thinking some of the movies we've got. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, Dune. Uh, we're going to be doing The Iron Giant, which uh, by the time this comes out, may have just that'll be the first Friday in August. So probably just came out on the blog. Going to be doing uh, Silent Running. We're going to be doing the the second and third film in the OSI trilogy. I did the Magnetic Monster last summer and uh, had Gog down for this summer because that just came out on Blu-ray. Carla called me on it and she says, well, we should do the other film first. And I said, well, that's true. So Riders to the Stars, which is a little harder to find. Actually, there's a good print on YouTube right now. So... We're going to be doing Riders to the Stars and Gog, kind of a Wednesday, Friday, uh, two for the price of one week. <laughs> and then I know towards the end of the month, we're going to wind down, and I know uh, uh, we're going to be covering on the very last day, which will be Labor Day, which is the unofficial end of summer. We're going to be covering Fantastic Planet, the 1973 animated film. I have the Criterion collection of that. Other than that, I, uh, I need to record something for Dread Media. I still... Need to record my review on the first purge. I have not been good on, on that. I'm sorry, Desmond. And possibly a Kansas City crypt on the Memiverse this month. Honestly, I've got a couple of days to do it as we're recording this, and I'm still drawing a bit of a blank. Chris is really good about just letting me do whatever, but also sometimes that that it's too much <laughs> too much freedom. Yeah, so. Hopefully, I, I will have a revelation in the next day or so and get something recorded for the August episode. Uh, if not, I will definitely have something out for the September one. I did want to just say what a couple of reviews that are coming up. On August 10th for Boom Howdy, I'm reviewing a movie called Along Came the Devil. It's a, a new movie. It's not classic horror, but uh, it's supposedly this generation's answer to the exorcist and i've got a few choice comments to say about that so be sure to to check boom howdy on august 10th and then on august 14th i'll be reviewing a movie from arrow video called what have they done to your daughters uh the more i learn about it i don't think it's strictly a horror movie but it's supposedly sort of a thematic sequel to what have they done to solange 
which is a horror movie. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. But, yep, that's uh, that's all I'm going to report this time. Well, I'm going to throw something else in because something I, I, I did a couple uh, weeks ago on the blog, and we're going to give it some proper due here on the podcast and talk about you being in print in another magazine. You don't toot your own horn enough, and I know you get uncomfortable with it, so tough. Um <laughs> You uh, have been doing some work with the uh, the uh, company over in the UK. Now, what's the name of the the, the company that puts out these books and magazines? Uh, we Belong Dead. Is that, is that yes? Yeah, it's. I think it's. I don't know if it's We Belong Dead Publishing, but I think so. that's that's yeah. that. Okay, they've done three books, and you've been in two issues at least of the magazine, uh, including the latest issue of We Belong Dead, issue number twenty. You do a, a, a really fantastic article, The Strange Romance of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And you cover a wide variety of the Jekyll and Hyde films. You were in issue 19, uh, where you talked about The Pit and the Pendulum. Uh, you've been in the three of their books, The Unsung Horrors, where you talked about frogs and there, and I just spit all over this thing in front of the mic. But we have a, a shield. We so have a shield okay. now, so we're good. Uh, Son of Unsung Horrors, uh, where you covered The Boy You Cried Werewolf in Time After Time, and then a uh, celebration of Peter Cushing, where you covered uh, the Grand Moff Tarkin character, as well as the fantastic 1961 movie Cash on Demand. These books, you know, they come from the UK. They're a little pricey, but let me tell you, they're worth every penny of it. I know we've talked a little bit about them in the past, but these are thick, heavy books. They're on... uh, Top quality, thick stock paper, color from cover to cover, well worth it. And uh, shipping happens very quickly. It seems like as soon as you do the PayPal on it, they they put it out in the mail within the next day or so. So if you want to check out any of these books or the latest issues in the magazine, issue 20, they've gone from a digest size to a full size magazine. Beautiful covers. That alone is worth the price. Plus you get to see and read some of Jeff's work, go to unsunghorrors.co.uk, and I think that's probably right. Do a thing for Unsung Horrors, and you'll find the books, all of which, all three books, I believe, are still available in print, and I know that you are working on uh, their upcoming Vincent Price book, which, if it's anything like the celebration of Peter Cushing, it's going to be something everybody needs to have in their collection. Again, it's worth the price. Uh, cheaper than a McFarlane book, uh, and certainly worth adding to your collection. And again, congratulations on being in print. I know you don't like tooting your own horn, <laughs> so I'm going to do a better job at making sure the world knows that you're getting some great stuff out there. You're getting in print, and uh, you know, 40 years from now, I'll be at a used bookstore and I'll see this this unsung horrors book, and I'll say I knew that guy. You know. So anyway. Uh, congratulations. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's nice of you to say. So on that note, what should we do next since I caught you yes. off guard? What, what's our next episode? What, what homework? Well, you know, um, we're going to be kind of going all across the board next, uh, next month because we're going to be going classic, but we're also going to be going more contemporary. Still 40 years ago, so I guess we're still going quite a ways back. We're going to be covering Dr. Moreau. And we're going to be talking specifically about three of the adaptations. We're going to be talking about Island of Lost Souls, which will have a little bit of Lugosi in it, a movie that 
is available on the Criterion Collection. Uh, I know by the time you hear this, the 50% off Criterion sale will be gone. But if you don't have that in your collection, you, you have to get it anyway. A movie called The Twilight People, which I've never seen. I'm dying to see. And then the uh, 77 Hollywood adaptation with Burt Lancaster and Michael York, which has been probably 35 years, I think, since I've seen it. It's a very long time, and I'm dying to revisit that. We're also going to not cover it as detailed, but we'll, we'll probably uh, talk a little bit about the uh, adaptation Terror is a Man. And I just, last night, on Shudder again, watched the documentary and Richard Stanley and the crazy 96 version with Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando. And we'll be talking about that next month. I don't want to see that movie, (laughs) but I almost have to see it, I think, now, just to see is it really as bad as they say it is. But we won't be talking about that one in detail, but we'll be giving enough time to it, uh, probably talking about some of the crazy production and the even crazier fact that uh, Richard Stanley apparently is attached to a possible television miniseries on Island of Dr. Moreau. His vision that he didn't quite get out in the 96 movie, apparently he wants to try to get out again. Some of the artwork that they showed in that documentary and some of his earlier plans for the movie, bizarre to say the least. So that'll be our, our uh, topic for next month. That's your homework. Go check them out. All those movies are easily available uh, in fact, I just acquired some of them within the last several months, so uh, we'll have some fun with that. So, Richard, if if um, Island of Lost Souls, ter- um, Twilight People, and Island of Dr. Moreau are the homework, would you say that Terror is a Man and the other Island of Dr. Moreau would be extra credit? Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. So, I let's lay the challenge out. We're not going to go into those movies in great detail, but, you know... Uh, there's a certain person out there who apparently has so much time that he can watch all 72,000 episodes of Dark Shadows in two and a half weeks. Yes, I'm calling you out, Steve. If you're out there, uh, why don't you why don't you watch Terror's a Man, and uh, why don't you give us maybe a, a little bit more detailed opinion of it? We'll cover it, but uh, why don't you talk about that movie and and. I'll just lay it out. Anybody who wants to see the 96 version... I'm glad you didn't call out anyone specifically because it may be treated as a punishment. Well, and yeah, we don't want to do that, and I don't want to lose any any listeners. So if anyone out there has seen the 96 version or wants to see it and give us their thoughts, I may have seen it by next month, maybe not, but that's if you want to do it, call in. Let us know your thoughts. We'll, we'll add you to it, and we'll have a fun time with the next month's show. You could do that by dialing in 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. Or send us an MP3 or a voicemail to classichorrors.club at gmail.com. While you're at it, remember, please try to give us an honest rating on iTunes. We would appreciate it. That's it for this meeting. I will call it to an end. We'll go out with a song by the Lagosis from their 2010 album, Bella Lives, available on iTunes. The song is Bella Lives, and indeed, Bella Lagosi will always live in our hearts. Goodbye. Take care, everyone.
Well, but-